Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt. When I'm hunting turkeys, it is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. Okay, Yanni, tell me about this big, um, uh, this big fancy play date your kids on. I just got some pictures. Jennifer had to go to Helena. It was funny. These guys came down from Helena. Jennifer had to go to Helena today, so we got to. Mabel doesn't go to school on Mondays, so we had to get her get her play date. She got to go to a very fancy play date. Some friends of ours own a boarding facility, as I think is what you'd call it. So quite a big property, bunch of big barns, bunch of horses. Only board horses. Some are theirs, and uh, but most of them I think are just clients. So she, we were like, you might not get to go ride horses because that's the whole thing and whatever. You probably, hopefully you just get to go and shovel some poop. That's what I'm always hoping that uh, my buddy <laughs> Nate makes him do is when they go over there and be like, nah, before you get to ride, you got to shovel some shit. <laughs> but I started getting pictures and, uh, and it's like, yeah, check this out. They went horseback riding. They went, uh, took a, a spin on the ATV. Then we went and stalked a buck with my father-in-law and uh, killed it. And uh, <laughs> your daughter's got amazing stalking skills. Must be in the genes. Are you serious? Yeah. Just like, I'm like, great, man. Like, can I come over tomorrow and have a play date too? <laughs> She's <laughs> not going to want to go home. Yeah. That don't happen today? That's all today. That's yeah. hilarious. Now man. they're going to Costco, which they love to go and <laughs> s- s- snack on all the uh, yeah, and know, then the, I got a giant appetite. pretzel. Yeah. <laughs> so I kind of grew up like that, actually. That was just everyday life. Yeah. Well, that's good, man. It's a solid play date. Right? Uh, oh, quick things. You know, uh, Martha, introduce yourself. Our very special guest, Martha Williams. Martha Williams. 
Tell everybody what you do. <laughs> Martha Williams, and I'm the director of Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Yeah, so every uh, people who listen to this show should by now have figured this out. Um, wildlife in, uh, in uh, America is owned by the people, and it's held in trust uh, by your states. Some exceptions, like stuff that has federal oversight because of endangered species and migratory things. But generally, yeah. wildlife is run at the state level. Yeah. All 50 states have what we just generally call a state fish and game agency. Yeah. Even though yours is... Fish, wildlife, and parks. Fish, wildlife, and parks. Colorado's used to be fish and game, but they felt it was too hunt-centric, which is something we'll be talking about today. And they revamped it to fish and wildlife so that the hunting people wouldn't have so much sense of entitlement and ownership, I guess. No, it's CPW, so it's Parks and Wildlife. Oh, yeah, that's right. And they roll. No, no, no. Sorry. California, I'm thinking. I'm, I'm mixing it up. Colorado but became that, parks. It, like Parks and parks Wildlife, got, yeah. Parks got rolled in, which is already true in Montana. Yes. Fish, wildlife, and parks. So you're in charge of three things. Um, only Col- three. Yeah, only three. <laughs> uh, yeah, Colorado got combined with the Parks Department and became... Parks and Wildlife? Parks yeah. actually yeah. separated in Colorado and then jo- joined back up. Oh. Oh, really? Yep. It's like people that get married a bunch of times well, to, the, to each other. Unfortunately, people talk about it that way. Yeah. yeah. Really? Uh-huh. They were together and split up and got yeah. back together again? <laughs> Divorced, stepchildren, et cetera. I didn't know that. Yeah. And then it was California that had to stop being fish and game because they felt it was like there's a connotation of... Like, there's a connotation of uh, shooting and killing and whatnot. So they mm-hmm. changed it to uh, wildlife, which is fine because Montana's always been wildlife. But it's changed. Oh, it hasn't. No. It's, Some people still call us fish and game. Yeah, we've been. We this, were, is the, this is the voice of Martha's minder. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough job. Uh, yeah. So we Greg were, Lemon. Greg, yeah, Greg Lemon. Uh, we were, it was in the 70s when we switched to fish and wildlife. Uh, so we were early on on the switch, but we are still... Oh, in the 70s, Montana went from fish and game to fish and wildlife? Yeah, it's, but... but oh, you see, can, I, would have, I would have been like, back then I'd been like, ah, what's the world coming to? <laughs> well, you can walk, you can uh, predict who's going to call us fish and game, you know, by the folks in the, in the the who are standing in our lobby. I mean, they'll, old timers still call us fish and game. Oh, yeah. We'll and always be fishing game. Where I grew up, it was um, everyone knew that it was the DNR. Yeah, DNR. Department of Natural Resources. Point being, how did I get on this? Oh, yeah. Uh, I was just intro. Uh, why was I talking about how states manage it, wildlife manage at the state level? Uh, just the to intro you? Public trust. Yeah, well, you, yeah. yeah, we'll get into that hardcore. But uh, Martha, you oversee, run one of these. Right. Where we... In the fourth largest state. Not by population, but by landmass. Well, and more importantly, the best uh, wildlife resources. No, man, I don't think so. You're, you're number, you're number three <laughs> after Alaska. You're number three. You're what? Number three. Okay. Uh, I feel yeah. I feel like Alaska. Wait, did I just concede that? Tell me, what are the other two? <laughs> yeah. We have Yanni and I have a running debate about this, but um, like I feel like uh, I feel like Wyoming's got a little bit of a toe, uh, like a little bit of a no way, a little bit of a. Why do you say that? I don't know. I don't know. I think you mostly just say that because of the, there's less people. 
Yeah. And I'm just one of those kinds of people that always feels like I should be somewhere else. Um, <laughs> quick thing. All right. We'll, we'll get back to that one, won't we? Yeah. I got some, no, I got some things I want to talk about. These are like little, <laughs> we do some little newsy items up top, but some of these newsy items are actually good because you'd be able to give your perspective on them. One of the newsy items is, I wish Brody was here, Pennsylvania is now celebrating having overcome the the decades-long battle against their blue laws. And blue laws are where you're not allowed to go hunting on Sunday. Um, people have all kinds of reasons why you can't go hunting on Sunday. It seems like the good money is on the idea that people felt that you were uh, was competing with, with church. Um, so you weren't supposed to hunt on Sunday. And then over the years... Uh, you know, people have become sort of, in, you know, embattled and, and they kind of lost track of what they're trying to solve in the first place. And then you had people who hated Sunday hunting bans. The National Shooting Sports Foundation, along with others, has been petitioning successfully against uh, Sunday hunting bans or blue laws in a bunch of different states. And finally now, like, Pennsylvanians are going to be allowed to hunt a handful of Sundays. Six or something like that? I wish Brody was here to give the details. Oh, boy. No, I don't even think it's... I think it's half that. I think they added three. So, like, every year... I think there was one during archery. For deer season, there's a couple Sundays where it's okay to hunt. One during archery, one during rifle, and then they they still hadn't come up with the third day yet. I believe that's what I read. You know, and thinking about laws like this, it's always funny to imagine. Like, there's always laws that are around, right? And everybody's success that they're around. But I think a good test of a law would be like, imagine that you tried to roll it out today. Instead of just having laws, because we've always had them, right? Constantly ask yourself, what would happen today if you came to a state? So someone comes to you, Martha, here in Montana, um, and they say, I got an idea. I think that you should not be able to hunt on a Sunday, right? It would be a very, very hard law (laughs) to enact. Right. But states that just have it, they just got to suck it up and have it, even though everyone's like, what? But you can't get rid of it. Well, but I think also of all the laws that we have that I don't think you could get through now, like some of the good ones. Mm-hmm. Do you, I mean, for instance? Well, I think stream access in Montana. Yeah, you're right. People that think was, you were insane. Right. Right. So, that's I mean, good, I think that's it, a great goes, point. Yeah. it goes both ways. Yeah. If you said, I got an idea, everyone can just... <laughs> Once they're in the river, they can just go where they want and drive boats up and down, well, and the go other, paddling every which way. People would be like, you're crazy, not the, through my property. The other great example is we've talked about it a bunch as an example of this is the Pittman-Robertson. You um, came yeah. up with that right now. Like we're like some people are throwing around the idea of taxing the backpack tax, and it's not very welcome. Yeah, I was bringing this up the other day. I think Yanni and I were driving around, and we were talking about how uh, everybody – I feel like there's like this new awareness around – Pittman Robertson. I think so too. Like it's been marketed well lately, right? Yeah. And so more people are aware of it. And I always hear, and I'll hear people, um, and I'll hear people throwing around like how proud they are of the the contributions that that gun owners and shooters, hunters and shooters, how proud they are of the contributions they make to conservation. And oftentimes I'll be hearing this from someone, and then I'll try to imagine that same individual what their response would be if it didn't exist and you proposed to them that we make a rule. They're like, I got an idea. How about the federal government comes in 
And they say that there's a 13% tax on all guns and ammunition that goes to help animals. People would, (laughs) people would like, there would be revolts in the streets over this. Yeah, or whole organizations would be founded to fight. There'd be organizations founded to fight it. It would be like, you know, it would lead to, I can't imagine the upheaval, but now people are like, hell yeah, bro, Pittman Roberts. <laughs> I wonder and what it, it was like back, you know, when it passed, like what a box of shells. Overwhelming. Cost. Was it? It was overwhelming. Well, Overwhelming the, support. Yeah. No, not this the support, but I wonder what it was like on the street, like the guy that owned the sporting goods store. You know, that sold like a 50 cent box of 22 shells and all of a sudden it was, you know, 58 cents. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I don't know like on the public end, but I know it had widespread support and came from hunters at the time. I just think hunters must have been a lot different. Well, back then they were- conservationists, both. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that, because they know it- uh, Not that they're different. I had someone point out that it was from the depths of despair, Mm -hmm. meaning it was at a time when there was nothing. Yeah. Wildlife was gone. And so that drastic, yeah, drastic situations lead to drastic measures. It was brilliant, though. I mean, it was brilliant. Also, I think of this all the time. When we go to the legislature, most people don't realize we have to get permission from the legislature to spend money, to spend any money. And so when we go and explain our programs um, for any of the states to get uh, the federal money, Pittman, Robertson, Dingle, Johnson, um, we have to have had our own statute, assent language. The states had to pass statutes to say we will only spend license money in a certain way and Pittman, Robertson, and Dingle, Johnson in a certain way or we don't get that federal money. And so when we go ask for permission, we'll, you know, the, the legislature will say, well, how about you do this? And we have to say – we can't. We can't do that because it's not in the assent language or it's the Pittman, Robertson, Dingle, Johnson doesn't let us do that. And that's really explain, hard to explain. Explain assent, how you're using it? Um, but hold the socks. I still want to do a couple. I got to do a couple more quick things I got to take care of. Okay. But can we enter with that? We'll enter with that part of the conversation. Sure. The um the money thing. But a couple of things. We, we have a... You don't have to have an opinion. Are you married, Martha? I'm sorry. Can I ask um, you a personal question? I... Ooh, that's a hard one. You I'm not married. That. I, I was married. My oh. husband passed away. Oh, I'm and sorry. I have a um an awesome boyfriend, oh. but I'm not married. We're gonna talk about wedding rings for a minute. Oh, oh, interesting. Do you have experience with these? Yes. Um, we've had a lot I of. Noticed. You got? Are you? I'm not wearing them today because <laughs> I was. Hang- oh yeah, where I, are I, your I, rings? I, I was. I'm, I usually have two on, but uh, I was hanging out of one of those uh, tethered tree saddle. Deals, yeah. The one I borrowed from you yeah. all weekend. Did you like it? Oh, I was surprised how comfortable and easy it was. It takes a little bit of trust because <laughs> there's no more. You're not standing on a platform anymore. Yeah, you got to trust no your gear. Seat. Yeah, you're just dangling around. Um, and that's not quite true, anyways. But without getting too into that, because I was climbing trees and climbing, you know, going up those ladders, I decided to take the rings off because it'd be a really good opportunity to get sleeved. You know. Yep. As a as a sort of Martha, as a sort of public service, we've been talking about the perils of rings. I had a, I got a fake one, one of the newfangled rubber ones. Yeah, but you know what? I was cold one morning, uh, got an antelope and it fell off. It's out in a field in Wyoming somewhere. Um, so now I'm running no ring. But a guy wrote in. He was. We were talking about 
accidents that have happened to people. His, this guy wrote in his body, he's a commercial fisherman. And he had a bunch of crabs and like he gets to the docks and you keep your crabs in these aerated tanks. And he got to worrying about the crabs that he had in the aerated tank that he's going to sell. And he wanted to go back in and check on them. And you either have to take a real long walk around a restaurant and through the wharf, or you can just jump this big fence. And his buddy climbs up to jump this big fence. There's a chain link or cyclone fence. Yeah. After he jumped down and slipped and all whatnot, not only was his ring on the fence, the whole finger on the fence. Oh. Yeah. The whole thing hanging there from a ring on the fence. He says he uh, he uses this mix this missing ring finger as a reason to not remarry. So apparently he's married at one point in time, and now he tells people he can't because of that. Uh, another guy wrote in that uh, we're talking about when people steal your spot. This guy took his pastor hunting ducks. Then later catches the pastor hunting the same spot. <laughs> yeah. Catches his pastor hunting the same spot with two other guys. And he switched churches. <laughs> yeah. Switched churches. I'm surprised he didn't switch religions. <laughs> <laughs> Morally compromising. <laughs> yeah. He wants to know, did I overreact? No. <laughs> no. Dude, it's hardcore. Oh, here, here's a good one for... Uh, yeah, it'd be hard to pay attention to the sermon at that point, right? <laughs> yeah. Heck yeah. What would you be thinking? Just bad negative thoughts. You yeah, know? when the pastor's up there, right. honesty. Right. <laughs> the hypocrisy <laughs> of the you Christian going, world. Yeah. I, can I throw in on the ring? So, oh, sure. Then I got yeah. Then I got one last little news thing. But these I, it's not even news. And, and it doesn't I have even a count as news. But, but go I, ahead. I've got a. Uh, so I when I got married uh, twelve years ago, I got uh, a titanium ring specifically. Why would you do that? Well, at the time, I some I had some friends that had them. They, they said, were cool. Yeah, and they were like, they're indestructible. Yeah, well, who's who's destroyed their ring? So what like, I, have you ever had anybody wear out a wedding ring? Well, let me tell you what I do with it. So I never carry around. Uh, bottle openers i never do but you can open a bottle with the titanium ring it doesn't even it doesn't even uh mark it up just put the cap in no yeah i can do it with my it teeth Is yeah, that but, yeah. Titanium? <laughs> but you can't you can't do that with a silicone and that and i've been thinking about it you know tossing it around like that you know how they got to get those off when people come in they break <laughs> their finger <laughs> yeah. they get it off by crushing it with a vice grip i never i never cease to keep because it's my fear that I'm going to get some sort of, you know, water retention, you know, sickness. And then all of a sudden my hand's going to swell. I'm not going to be able to get. And yeah, yeah no. Because we had an emergency room doctor write in and say, do not wear the titanium ones because we cannot grind through them. He said when they got to get a titanium ring off someone who's got a hand injury, they need to crush it with a vice or a pair of locking pliers. Oh. You can you can only break it off. You can't cut it off with the equipment the equipment they have. So the so the benefit of being able to open a beer bottle with your ring is not doesn't offset the yeah. See wrist. this little thing I have on my keychain. I'm showing Greg now. It's Some folks thing. call that a bottle opener. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's with me most times. One last news item. There's a guy. I don't really get. It's kind of a long email. He's in the PhD program in archaeology at the University of Colorado Boulder. And he's petitioning his state right now 
to allow him, he doesn't think he's going to get anywhere with this, but he's petitioning the state of Colorado to allow atlatl hunting. What's your take on that, Martha? I think we've gotten one of those before, too. How do you how do you handle it? Oh, it was a like piece. you know you know you tell me that. How do you break that one down? Yeah, well, let me uh, okay. Uh, let's just do this. Let me. I'm trying to put it in a fair way. Like, um, what would be in your mind as a state director of a wildlife agency? What are some of the things that roll around in your head the minute someone says, "I ought to be able to," <laughs> right? Kill a deer with an with an atlatl. Oh, I mean the. The first thing that comes up is fair chase. I mean, you know what I think of what are traditional hunting um, methods, and and I think now rather than going, we typically think forward and what um, technologies are pushing hunting where it goes beyond fair chase and and has society you know caught up to that method or not. I don't often think of going backward. backward. Um, why wouldn't we? I guess, I guess my first question would be, why wouldn't we rather than starting with, nah, yeah, I, I guess it would, I, I, you know, I don't know. Cause some, some states have some states, it's not that they allow you to do it. Some states, when you look at the rules, it doesn't prohibit it, but I would imagine the oh, big yeah. argument against it would be one of efficacy. Yeah. And like the risk of, uh, maiming stuff Ugh. and you remember some years ago there was a huge brouhaha where a guy uh made a big production out of killing a bear with a spear Mm-mm. oh it was like a whole it was in canada right i believe so killed oh. a bear with a spear in canada the blow up was so bad yeah the social upheat like what was where i'm looking for everybody being pissed <laughs> so pissed that the province then made it illegal to spear a bear to hunt with a spear. They yeah. went from having that it wasn't clarified. Yeah, a guy did it. People were so it was so offensive to people that you kill it with. I think people look at it like it's a stunt. Yeah, like you're stunting, right? Huh. And man, they were pissed. And then made it that clarified that one cannot hunt with a spear. Well, didn't we talk about this in the car on the way here, in a way, Greg? We weren't talking about spearing a bear, but we were talking about, in Montana, you know, um, hunting, bow hunting versus rifle. And um, is it the experience that we're allowing people to get out and have, or is it just really, um, is it the efficacy? Is it that you, obviously, you want to kill an animal with one shot? And you should be good and proficient, but um, if we were worried just about the efficacy, would would we then limit the opportunity we have and the and the um, method of take? Yeah, it's. No, I mean, there's a balance there. It is. It's like, <clears throat> yeah, it's it's hard to. Uh, it's when you you can go through life having it all make sense. Like what you can and can't do. And then someone throws out a question like the atlatl question. So tell question. me really what is an atlatl? It's a throwing board for a spear. Okay. It's a, What's the a, thing you swing? A bolo. <laughs> okay. Yeah. An and atlatl is, it's a spear, but it's just a mechanism by which people can throw spears. So they, they archaeologists feel that 15,000 years ago when this, when the Western Hemisphere was colonized, 
it was colonized by people who hunted with atlatls. So it's like, it's a spear, but then there's a board that you hold on to. And it's like, you know, those things, you know, a good way to think about it. You know, those things when you go to a dog park, the things people use to throw tennis balls. Oh yeah. That whippy little tennis ball hucker. And atlatl is one of those that throws a spear. What's the name of that game that those things came from? Jarts. No. Is that what Lawn darts. No. No, no, no. It's like in a room, and you have all the players have those crescent curved. Come on, Phil. I don't think dog that. throwing dog ball hookers. Cricket. No, it, you throw it against the wall. It's racquetball. <laughs> oh, the trackball. The big. They had the big. Oh, that was a good oh. game, man. Is that what it's called? That little it looks like a little sickle. Yeah. Yeah. And it hawks a ball. Yeah. A wiffle ball. I think that was called yeah, trackball. Did you see that? Did you see the uh, Jackass where they were movie where they were throwing yes. oranges at each other with those things? Uh uh-uh. oh, I did get good wallop. Very oh. very entertaining. So <laughs> uh, the Adelaide thing, I don't know. I, I'd be curious to see what happens with it, but it does. Like everything makes sense. Like oh, you can hunt with a gun, you can hunt with a bow, and then but you don't think about it too much. And then someone proposes like, well, why can't I do X? And it puts you in this position where you're trying to like articulate something that you hadn't thought to articulate. Like, uh, I don't know. Why can't you? So I don't think you should be able to, but why don't I think you should be able to? I think we do that all the time, too. (laughs) Things come up that you've got to break it down. How would we answer that? On this question, uh, the statute governs some of what we can take, use for take in Montana. And uh, there was a bill a few sessions ago. Lighted Knox. No, well, there was an Adelaide bill proposed in Montana that died in the legislature. So someone advanced it. It got its due, it's got its due course. Yep. It got considered in a serious way Mm -hmm. and didn't make it. Didn't make it. Uh, Does the state record the rationale of things or do they not record the rationale? Like when it didn't make it, does someone record sort of... uh, is it recorded like the arguments against it and for it are recorded or not recorded? They're recorded uh, in like the p- public records of the hearing. So there was a public hearing on it and those who who came forward in favor and those who came forward against, it's all. And the look. gist of what they had to say would be available. Yeah, it's yep. legislative history. I'd love to go see what the guy or gal who had to say, why not? And I and don't why. remember. We should remember. It wasn't that long ago. No, but it was. It was when I was still in journalism, and I and it wasn't. Um, but we could track it down. So you could look up the bill number, and you could you and the sponsor because the sponsor. What what I do remember of it is the sponsor. Sometimes sponsors are not real invested in the bill. They just happen to, you know, have a constituent that wants something carried. He's got to be in his bonnet. And, yeah, but the, the sponsor on this one really cared. Was I? I would think was really interested in it. Really, we got shot down. Yeah. 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 Uh, Thanks. Now we'll see a, another proposal next session. Um, <laughs> that's it for newsy stuff. <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah, you know, method of take. That's the thing I find it uh, when I'm talking to people who aren't familiar with the hunting and rules of hunting. They're often uh, interested to hear about all the method of take restrictions, such as like in this state. You can shoot a variety of, like you can shoot uh, mountain grouse. So what they call it here would be like Franklin's, Blues. Dusky. 
Yeah. Well, now, nah, yeah, like, yeah, you're right. You're way ahead of me. <laughs> Dusky grouse, ruffed grouse, spruce grouse can be killed with a rifle. But you can shoot with a 22. You cannot shoot with a 22. Sharptail grouse, pheasants, right? Um, turkeys, you cannot shoot them with a rifle in the spring. You can shoot them with a rifle in the fall. There's a ton of method to take stuff out there. Yeah. Yeah, regulations like, get complicated. Yeah, people like wrestling over it. Uh, all right. I'm going to get back to this, the, the, the money thing. Oh. Um, I'm trying to think of entering this in the, the way, the, the most instructive way possible. You're probably good at doing this. Lay out for me like what uh, – lay out for folks. <laughs> lay out for folks like what it is – like what it is – a state fish and game agency does like what are the things you're responsible oh. for looking at uh-huh. and then how does that get paid for easy question oh it is thanks no oh <laughs> <laughs> um well i think we're responsible for more than people realize and we're responsible for more than um what we always get direct funding for i mean so i think Fish and Game, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, DNRs uh, are charged with more than people realize. In Montana, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks' mission is to steward the fish, wildlife, recreational, and parks resources of Montana. Um, And we do that with the Citizen Commission, and we do it with a board, um, you know, so we don't do it alone. Can you explain the Citizen Commission? Sure. Somewhere so, within your explanation. So in some states, it's different. So um, the director, I'm appointed by the governor. In some states, the director is appointed by the commission. Okay. But in Montana, the governor appoints the director of all of the agencies, and the governor also appoints the Fish and Wildlife Commission and the Parks and Recreation Board. So there, the Citizen Commission, it's the Fish and Wildlife Commission and the Parks and Recreation Board. And they really are the ones that set policy and um, help with um, allocation issues. And then you have the legislature in Montana passes statutes that um, get into specific numbers and percentage of um, resident versus non-resident licenses, issues like that. So the department brings proposals forward to the commission. And this is what people often call a game commission. Yep. Yep. And those game commissions were um, the early getting to the origin of the Pittman-Robertson Act and the, um, you know, restoration of wildlife and why we funded the way we did was early on when wildlife populations were depleted. At best, you know, bison were decimated, birds, migratory birds were um, – populations were decimated for feathers, deer, a, lot, a number of wildlife populations um, and fisheries, commercial fisheries were plummeting. And so states created um, the fish and game commissions to try to restore those species. So in the United States, the states have always uh, – been the entity that stepped up to um, manage what we think of as that the public trust, the wildlife resources in the country. Mm-hmm. And it started with those fish and game commissions. 
And then um, they realized, you know, the, that you needed that scientific underpinning. You needed to understand what species needed or what habitat you needed. And then the, the departments developed around um, giving that expertise in the, in the scientific research to know how to manage. I didn't realize that the, the idea of game commissions predated the idea of a state agency. Yep. So it would just be like someone would appoint a bunch of people that had a vested interest or expertise, and they'd be like, hey, you all get together, and yeah. you figure out if there should be a deer season or not. Yeah, because, well, they stepped up because they felt like they needed to be recovering these species. Yeah. They weren't dealing with the plethora of riches that we're dealing with today, luckily. Yeah. I mean, it was a totally different different scenario. So there's still this interplay between a, a state fish and game agency and a state's commission. Yes, is it, definitely. Is it tense at um, times? Well, sure. I mean, it can be tense. I don't think it's bad at all. I mean, I, I um, our current commission, I feel like we recognize that we have different roles. And so instead of arguing or it being tense, I think we just realize we have different roles to play. The department puts forward proposals and the commission you know, sometimes they're put in the hardest position where they've got to vote on these proposals. I want and a I'm job. Thinking, on, how do you get a job on that commission, man? I want to be you, on that commission so bad. You do? Oh, you yeah. should apply. How many people are on it? They're five. See, Thanks, I just Greg. want to just be me. <laughs> and they're paid <laughs> positions? No, no, they are not paid positions. I would they love are, to do they, it. I would want no one else to be on duty. it. I want to be the only commissioner. Yeah. <laughs> well, you could, uh, it doesn't you work could be that the way. chairman. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm going to shoot for. Are there any great. states where uh, it's an elected position that you hold? Or commissioners all, always appointed. It's always. I've never heard of non. Uh, I don't know of any that are elected, but I've certainly I haven't looked at but all the other run, states. They had to run for game commission. Be sweet. Ooh. So you're in Montana. They're they're appointed on different staggering terms. Staggering terms. So they're so when a governor is a new governor is elected, there's some overlap in terms so um you know so there's continuity the continuity between one administration to the next yeah. and then they also represent regional area so there's not like five commissioners from the most populated areas of the state they're spread out so um yeah. we have got like a commissioner from Glasgow for instance that represents region that region of the state. Got you. And there's a All mix right, Martha, of we got you way. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just saying we got you way off, off, off your answer. But. Oh, oh, Pittman Robertson. No. Uh, or how are we what, Yeah. What? Um. Yeah. Like what? What your mandate is? Like how? What you do? Oh, right. And how it all gets paid for? Yeah. So so. At least in Montana, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, I believe the – well, Montana Constitution, I could go off forever on that. It's just a really cool document. It goes back to the conversation of could we get a, con a constitution through now that looks like the one we have? I think it would be hard. So uh, the constitution and the statutes um, set up what the department does, uh -huh. and that is that we um, – steward fish, wildlife, parks, recreational resources. And then you add a layer to that. Our funding primarily comes from selling licenses. And then um, – What percentage of it? That's um, – let's see. It's about $53 million. It's almost half. Almost half of the – Of our budget comes from license sales, which is pretty high. Not all states are that high. 
Um, and then the then the rest of it, we don't get well. We used to not get any general fund. Um, we we fund ourselves really through license sales, and then the Pittman Robertson, Dingle Johnson Land and Water Conservation Fund, all the different federal sources of of match that we get. Um, yeah, that's that's how we operate. But you you a lot of agencies do not have hard funding. Explain that, and and you do get hard funding. We yeah right. So when the the Pittman Robertson Dingle Johnson, I think it started as Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act. Yeah. So the concept started where it put excise taxes on on certain equipment, you know, hunting fishing equipment. When when both Dingle Johnson and PR were passed. And the states could get that money, a certain apportionment to the state, if the state had its own statute that said the state can use license money um, only for uh, restoration of fish and wildlife and for these, you know, to help um, game species too. Yeah, like the state can't rob its – the state can't That's rob right. its its. Uh, it can't be like, oh, you, your department has a bunch of money. I'm going to take all that and spend it on something. So that has we have to. to with, yeah, that's yeah. right. We have to. It's what it's called control. The fish and game agency has to retain control over the money, the license money, and any of that federal m- matching money that comes in. So we have to retain control of it. That's one buzzword. And then also we can't divert it to another – someone else um, can't spend it and it can't be diverted to what's called an ineligible use. So we, if you were to do that, then you become ineligible for the federal money. That's right. And no state wants this. Like, no, you Most states wouldn't want to – they wouldn't want to screw themselves like that. So they don't totally. steal your money and do an airport renovation with it or something. Exactly. Yeah. That's part of the brilliance of the um, – it's the Wildlife Sport Fish Restoration Program, WUSFER. That combines all these different um, federal pots of money. And what's the what's the hard funding? I mean, like just like general, like when someone pays just the regular taxes, like a person lives in a state, Montana, elsewhere. That doesn't come to Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. No, none of that money comes. No, um, a little bit now for our aquatic invasive species program. Okay, I think that's it, and not very much of it. And that's dedicated. Yep. So you don't just get like a general chunk. Like the same way no. the Department of Transportation no. gets like Mm-mm. just general state money. No. And we're one of the few agencies that does that. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, in preparing to have this conversation was one of the things we talked about. Uh, one of the things that really like initiated the conversation was was talking about this this sort of this this whole package of things that we're discussing, meaning like who owns wildlife, who manages it, how does it get paid for? All this is sort of captured in this kind of hard to understand concept of the North American model of wildlife conservation. Yeah. Phil, what's the North American Wait, model of wildlife? What is that? Let's ask Phil. He don't hunt. What's the North American model of wildlife conservation, Phil? Real quick. I could not give you a good definition. No. Oh, see, there you go. Well, how many? This is every man. Off, this is just the every man off the street. He doesn't know. Um, he doesn't. He doesn't need to know. I'm not even mad at him about not knowing. Um, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so North American model of wildlife conservation, meaning here's a helpful way to look at it. Look at places that don't have it, right? It's helpful to explain like what it is by like, look at a place that doesn't have it. For instance, you go to a place like Scotland. Um, we talked about this before in Scotland, they have right to roam. You can go wherever you want. 
Like people can't kick you off their property. You can, you can roam around wherever you want to go. But can you fish everywhere? Nope. Can you hunt everywhere? Nope. And in Scotland here, like here in the U.S., and let, let's take again because we're here talking to the state director, in Montana, um, you might own property and there might be elk on that property, but you do not own those elk. They belong to the state. They belong to the people. Mm-hmm. So, like, you have the you hold the ground they sit on, but you have no more right to them than anybody else has to them. You control access to them, but you don't control the things themselves. You can't box them up. You can't give them away. You can't just shoot them when you feel like it. You got to go through all the rules everybody else has to go through. Um, and then that's, like, a big part of the North American model of wildlife conservation. And the other part of it is is, is that, that – that it has, there's public input on management and public input on how we pay for it all. You bet. So. And yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well, I think of that too. I don't want to get too wonky, but I actually think of what you've just explained that, um, that wildlife, the, the public holds wildlife in trust. We, well, the state holds wildlife in trust. We manage that asset. And the legislature is, in a way, the trustee. They set the laws. We manage it. And the beneficiary, the people who benefit from that, and we need to manage the wildlife for everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, more um, derives from the public trust. And I think of the North American model as the statutes and the funding mechanisms that this country put into place that helps fund that model that allows us to have the public trust. So it's kind of, it's twofold. And But I'm following you. Yeah, well, the reason I, yeah, the reason I was getting to that, and you can color this any way you want to color it, but I, I think that <laughs> w- one of the ways it gets, it gets important, it gets down to some of the things we wanted to discuss today, is the wildlife is for everyone, Yeah. right? Let's just say, so here, here in a state like this, Wildlife is for everyone. You're supposed to manage wildlife for everyone. Everyone has different ideas. This is going to be too big of a question. I see where you're going. Everyone has different ideas. Everyone's an expert. About, well, like, okay, if you're managing it for me, here's what I would like to see happen, right? I would like every bear that comes near my house to die. And your job is to manage wildlife for me because I own it and that's what I want to do. And then someone else, the next person down the road, it's like, since you're managing wildlife for me, um, I want no bears to ever die. And so that's what I want because it's my wildlife and you're just here to manage it for me. And there's a lot of reconciling that needs to happen. And what throws a little bit of a wrench into this whole thing is that you just pointed out that people that buy hunting and fishing licenses are paying over half of the budget for your agency. And then another huge chunk of your budget is coming from people who buy firearms and ammunition and fishing equipment and other and some designated sporting goods like bows and arrows and whatnot. So they're all footing the bill. Talk about uh, or share with us your thoughts about how one sort of does triage on this. Like whose opinion matters the most? Oh. The one that's paying? <laughs> I would. Is this I, why you do this? You just got right to the heart of it. Oh no! It, it, yeah, <laughs> and, and there's a, there's a lot there, but like, yeah. right? You don't even need to give your own personal opinion. You don't need to even talk about what happens here. But like, yeah, what happens when you start wrestling all this out? Well, 
Okay, so awesome question. And, and I don't even know what the question was. Um, Whose opinion matters? The people that pay or the people that don't pay? Or is it all the same? Do you get a bonus because you paid? No. You get two votes? Well, I'm sure you'd <laughs> like to. Um, you get a vote, although not a specific vote. You get to be engaged. You get input yeah. for sure. So, I mean, it goes to the other piece of what you started with in that um, we – have to do our work through public engagement. So my opinion actually really doesn't matter. Um, my opinion on on the decision-making process and guiding it to make sure it's as fair and transparent as possible matters. But it's the public input um, that should guide kind of where we go. But it's not a vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, got, I got you. And obviously – um, there's always going to – it's a balancing act. I mean, we were talking about that on the on the way down. I, there's very little we do that doesn't require balance. I mean, most decisions that come to a fish and wildlife – fish, wildlife, and parks agency. Parks sometimes is less controversial. But fish and wildlife, um, I can hardly think of many decisions that don't require some balance. Oh, you, you mean to tell me that um... – uh, Everybody in this whole state doesn't all just uh, agree on everything. <laughs> oh yeah, they agree always. And letters flood I can't in. Even Excellent, job. <laughs> Excellent job. Excellent <laughs> job. Hey, yeah, you're hired. <laughs> no, um, no, of course they don't. Of course they don't. And I mean, think about it. Uh, you know, you've got walleye fishermen, or um, a walleye fishery and a trout fishery, or you know, bears. Do we? protect bears and never kill a bear? Or do we make sure bears don't get around shelter belts, you know, on the Rocky Mountain front? So I don't know that there's ever going to be the perfect answer. We're always, so maybe another way to put it is, it's our job that we're always going to make somebody mad. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just the way it goes. So how do you do that? First of all, I think, um, sure, we can get hammered on so many issues we get all these competing interests. Yeah. I mean, that's just the nature of what we do, period. I think there's tremendous beauty in that because people are passionate. So, yeah, they might be crazy passionate sometimes, but they care. And can we've talked internally, what would it feel like if people didn't care what we did? I think that would be worse. Or, would it, you know, what if people didn't care about our outdoor experiences. What if people didn't care about elk? What if people didn't care about grizzly bears? I get what you're saying. It'd be a I bummer. get no, I get what you're saying, like in theory. Yeah. But it has things. to be but in theory. We one, have to embrace okay, it or it would kill us. There's two things that yeah, there's two things you said that I that that I appreciate. One that you, you said that you don't spend like what you think doesn't matter. Yeah, that's interesting. Do, do do you feel like you're pretty successful at, at pushing down like your personal take on it? Uh, you should ask Greg where you're that. like where you're like personally. I, I would never hunt with an atlet, you know, atlatl. Therefore, no one should. Like that wouldn't be something that's going to roll through your head. No, it wouldn't roll through my head. But <laughs> but then that gets to another topic. Maybe I mean that's just my style of leadership. It's it's a team effort. There's no way. I could be director without really great people around me. Yeah. And so for them to be good, I feel like it's better to turn to to push it down. But Greg, do I really do that or do I just hope I do? No, you're good at it. And I think I think the other thing that 
this piece, the the opinion piece, the other thing that comes into this is is our science work. Absolutely. Back to sort of our core role as these trust managers. Well, hold that thought for me. That's uh, we'll get into that. Good. Um, because that's a, that that is also a, a hard word. Yeah. Um, which one, science or man? Who's got science on their side? Oh yeah. Everybody's got science on their side. Yeah. Well, and both sides of whatever. When you're talking about passion. People coming to us with a passionate, you know, uh, opinion. They both sides have. They come with science too. Yeah, because they know that th- that we are in the realm of science, and so that the conversation is not just about I like this or I like that. It's I want this to happen based on this science. Yeah, but I think what's we'll get into this a little bit in a minute. But what's scientific is incredibly unscientific. And it's social science, a science? <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. It's a lot of, there's a lot of social science tied up in the science. But when you said that you like that everyone's engaged. Yeah. Really? So w- yeah. When, when there's a hot button issue. Okay, I mean, I have to. There's a hot button issue and you have a, a hearing, right? Or like a public comment period. Yeah. And you come in and there's, right? Everyone's in there ready to kill them, kill each other over this thing. Yeah. You have people that like, you know, take wolves like that. That incites a lot of passion. You have people really? who are like, you know, kill them all. Let God sort them out. You have people who are like, you know, wolves are, you know, are higher than unicorns on the the list of what's sacred. And um, and you're like, oh great, everybody showed up. I'm so happy they have opinions. I am. I mean, think about okay, just think about that. Um, what if we showed up to talk about wolves and there were three people in the room? I would turn to Greg and say, we did something wrong. Oh, really? We missed the boat here. We missed reaching out to people if only three people show up talking about wolves. Yeah. Wouldn't that be scarier? I mean, seriously, it would, mean, would that mean that people just, nah, we don't really care? Do you get overall good participation? Like if, it, if it's not something like a wolf or a, you know, buffalo or something big and... <clears throat> <laughs> Charismatic, you know, like when there's a meeting on, I don't know, give me an example. Yeah, what would be an example of something that doesn't get a lot of public excitement? Uh, Well, it doesn't happen every two years. So we set our uh, regulations every two years, our our hunting regulations. And so that we go through all like the quotas and everything else. We go through, it's all the regulation booklets. I mean, it's all that information is done every two years in our season setting process. And there's portions of that that are always controversial, but there are some pieces of that pin drop. that we'll hold, we'll hold a meeting where we'll outnumber the public participants at the meeting. There'll be five FWP people and two hunters. Yeah, so no, that is a bad sign for when we outnumber the public. Gosh, you think we'd all show up for regulations meeting? I haven't shown up. Me neither. But no, we, I'm sorry. But, if you're guilty. But to be fair, too, I mean, we are like other agencies. We're trying to think of: Are there other ways to engage the public? If if people stop showing up at public hearings, should we be reaching out to them in different ways? Yeah. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan 
based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. OnX Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground, insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder, so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Yeah, I've said it before and I'll say it a thousand times more. If you got a family and you got people that rely on you, you need to take life insurance seriously. And Policy Genius is the country's leading online insurance marketplace. So with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars in coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Your life insurance policy you know, that you get at work may not offer enough protection for your family's needs. Policy Genius gives you unbiased advice from a licensed expert support team. Now, this is super convenient, right? Because a lot of times, you know, something like life insurance, you're just going to put it off because you're like, when will I ever have time to do that? I don't even know who to talk to about it. Well, this helps you do it online. Okay, again, you're comparing options from top companies, all right? Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. I don't, I don't I, listen, man, I, I rarely go into stores to buy clothes. I like to, I just buy my stuff online and I love their shirts. Max that I work with, Max Bard, who comes on the podcast one day, I don't know if he sent me a link to this place. I went on and bought some shirts. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing and get like a whole different cut of the shirt. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. They got it started out with a lightweight fishing shirt. Now they make all kinds of other lines. Western, denim, flannel, corduroy. Better fitting. Not, not all baggy. Better performing because they got modern fabrics with some stretch and breathability. And way comfortable. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com. Use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. All right, I want to I wanna, uh, move back a little bit because there's something I want to hit on more like precisely. Um, the funding question. Yeah. Like, I, like seriously, wh- how, like, what is an, a- how does an agency view the fact? How does an agency view the idea that all people's opinions matter, mm-hmm. right? Everyone should have an opinion at the table, but then only some of the people are funding the structure. Mm-hmm. What's your, like, how do you view that? Do you, is that viewed as a problem? Is it viewed just like a fact of life? Do you feel that people within a state fish and wildlife agency, do they sort of overserve the payers? Are there, 
are, is there an idea that like those are the ones we should keep happy because they're paying for it all? Like, how do you wrestle that? I, I'm not saying, you know, I know what I'd like to see where, happen. Where are you going with that? No, no I, mean, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm asking. Is... It's got to be something that comes up. Oh, totally. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a fair question. So, yes, it's a fact of life because it is what it is. It's what we've had in place. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I think we pay, you know, in all fairness, we pay close attention to what's our traditional base. Mm-hmm. So the people who pay, yes, we have to pay attention to them. And I believe we always will. With that said, um, they can't be the only voice. If if other people comment, um, I sometimes get people asking me, like, how could you meet with such and such? And my answer is because I'm a public servant. I meet with who asks me to meet with them. You know, I, I can't cut a voice out mm-hmm. because it's not popular. So I I believe we have to listen to all voices. But, I mean, yeah, we – there is a certain skew toward our traditional base because that's who we're used to working with. Yeah. And, and I would say um, we don't want to lose them. I mean, we are in the business of – perpetuating of um, encouraging uh, getting outside, that experience outside, we want people to hunt. We want people to fish. That's not the only thing we want them to do. But um, we do want that heritage and that tradition to continue. So is it tricky? Sometimes, yes. I mean, you know, it's we're, we're perpetuating a tradition at the same time we use science and we try to listen to all perspectives to come up with the best solution we can. Uh, best proposal. Is it a lot harder? Let, like, take that from it. Like, in a state like this, um, hunting is a big economic driver, right? So there's a lot of economic activity yeah. that occurs around hunting. Yeah. So you could look, like, one, one can go and make this argument. They can look at deer, chronic wasting disease, right? Like, chronic wasting disease could come. And have a big impact on public perception of mm-hmm. hunting and participation and could cost communities. Like if there's a community and they have high CWD prevalence, people are going to go hunt somewhere else. And that is bad for business for people that have hotels. and right. Get, right? So all this stuff goes on around it. And you look and you'd be like, man, we need to protect this thing. Um, the thing I look at, the thing I envy about Alaska, for instance, is how jealously they guard their salmon resources. Because commercial – Huge commercial business, huge recreational business. Like, don't go to Alaska and mess with salmon. It, like, it's not going to go well for you. Yeah. But what about, uh, like, when you want to kill the hummingbirds. goose that lays the golden egg? Yeah. So then you take, like, oh, there's a big problem with hummingbirds. Um, is that tough? Is it, like, hard to get, like, the, 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 the agency momentum and the money and the support to go do something where no one can come and argue to you about – the economic impact of hummingbirds. Do hummingbirds tend to get like forgotten? Um, ooh, is not that them a spe- softball to well, not them so, specifically, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Like if people are like, "Okay, hunters pay for this. Elk is economic driver. All this stuff. Like, what do you do? Like, how do you begin to think about and address issues of people like that? that we're not. I'm not calling you up to buggy about it. I guess that people aren't. I'm guessing that people don't every day call you to make sure hummingbirds are okay. Yeah, well, I think of that a bunch of ways. One, I mean, that's the whole point of the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. 
and all the precursors to precursors to that, you know, teeming with wildlife care, blue ribbon panel, whatever, yeah. or or the states that have a mechanism to help pay for to add to the funding of a wildlife agency so they can get to um, hummingbirds and our species you hadn't even heard of. Um, so so that would be helpful, and I think it's needed. Absolutely. The challenge I have. You say what's needed is like an, a, an additional outside funding. additional. Yeah. Well, I think so. So that we can get to those other species that we haven't. I mean, what in Montana we have, how many species do we have, Greg? A lot. Of of wildlife and oh, only I don't know that you got like nine big game animals five hundred yeah. and we got we have five hundred <laughs> we got five hundred and twenty four <laughs> I just happen to have this at my fingertips uh, fish and wildlife species in the state and how many of those are game eighty huh. more than you realized we, we have, have oh we that's have a good that's a good hit, hit that to me again uh, five hundred twenty four total fish and wildlife species and eighty game species. That includes hauling. fish. But here's the thing. What about ones that are like uh, – now I'm just curious. Take like the uh, short-tailed weasel. Now, he's non-game, but take is permissible. So is he in that – is he in the 80 or the 5? Um, I – my – so I would assume that uh, he, he would be in the 80 if we have a permissible take. Okay. But we have set, and we have seventeen uh, species that are federally protected. Really, or warranted, federally protected or warranted. So we have responsibility over all five hundred species, and if we had better funding, you, you have not as many. You maybe wouldn't have seventeen, although that's not that high, um, that are federally protected. I mean, the point is, I think if we had more capacity and resources to get to the other species of, you know, to the 500, then um, I would hope fewer need that federal protection. Well, and so one another twist in this is 80% of our budget goes to 20% of the wildlife species, management of the wildlife species. 80% of the budget goes to 20%. And though that's why I'm guessing that 20% are... are Fishing game that people the, pursue the game species plus the um, the ones that either re- require state they require state management like they're a species of special concern or they're federally protected. Yeah, and so that answers your question of um, people who buy licenses and or ammunition or fishing gear are I think they get a pretty good return. Yeah, that's interesting, man. But I'm thankful for them too. Oh yeah, they're not doing anything wrong. No, they're just buying their license. Yeah, uh, we want them. There's a lot of like you know in, in in our world we hear all these different ideas people throw out about other ways to get other ways to the other people should pay too, right? Yeah, and I don't even know if I like that idea or not because I don't know if we played that all the way out. Should we? Oh, <laughs> well, that I'll, would take give, more than two hours. Yeah, okay. So it? I'll give like I'll give a commonly held perception about it. To be that right now, all this money comes in, and eighty percent goes to either like the the listed stuff, or it goes to game, right? Research on game um, enforcement, all this kind of stuff. So some people 
it often comes up this idea, and Giannis brought it up earlier, that there should be some, there's this kind of like this nascent concept of a backpack tax, mm-hmm. meaning that there should, that other people should be paying money. Um, you, when you buy a backpack, it should be taxed. The same way if you buy a rifle, it's taxed, and that tax from your backpack should go to help pay for... Or binoculars. They're not rolled in? No, they're not, are they? Mm-hmm. Rifle scopes, I think, are. But, but I don't think binoculars... Yeah. Right. It doesn't catch mm-hmm. binoculars. So, but but when I say backpack tax, I don't mean like, let's just say... Right. I don't mean like Gear specifically backpacks, but like taxes on other stuff to help flood money. But a thing people bring up is people who have a strong voice... Mm-hmm. That already have a seat at the table, and if if you like hunt and fish, you you typically, some states I wouldn't say this is true of, but generally, if you hunt and fish, you have a big seat at the table. Um, your your needs are being heard. That by bringing in other payers, that people think that these other payers are going to come with expectations. So you think so? Those people think of it as a pie, and there are only so many slices. Uh huh. And so they're not going to want more people there because then their slice gets a little thinner. I don't the think the pie I, being how much attention can be paid yeah, to your needs. Yeah, but yeah. I don't think of it as a pie. I mean, I, I you can look at it that way, and I get it, and I think we have to pay attention to that. So, um, fish state fish and wildlife agencies. I I think we need to do everything we can to provide the best service we can to the people who pay. Absolutely. And if we could grow capacity, then we could pay better attention to some of the other species, and that funding could help there. So I don't, you know, I I can, I appreciate the worry of losing some power or influence on the decisions, but I think that looks at it as a pie instead of realizing actually that it's more than that. It's not a finite resource. It's something that if we had more money, we could build capacity and address other things as well and not let go of the our traditional constituency. We still need to pay attention to them. That's not a the point isn't to move away from what we've no, always done. It's to build more. I think where where that question becomes interesting is um Probably the last word you like. One of the, the last word you Uh-oh. like to hear is wolves, right? Wolves. Okay, so <laughs> let's just say, let's say that. Do you have a howl? Do you add noises in? Any? No, Yanni can do a uh, elk bugling really far away though. You ever heard this? He'll do it. Can I hear it? Way off in the wind. It's good, isn't it? It sounds like he's like five miles away. It's sort of amazing. I can see the steam in the air. <laughs> to hear it re- in real life is just oh, remarkable. Sends chills up your spine. Oh, yeah. Your sends chills the up your spine. hairs on the back of your neck. Uh, but I don't think he can do it. Can you do a wolf way off, Yanni? No. <laughs> oh, Jeez. Phil? Not... Good job, Phil. Okay, uh, take wolves. Yeah. Now, Let's just say. Thanks for picking an easy one. Yeah. Um, take wolves. Let's say that there's a thing you have to buy. Like, but let's just uh, there's some enforceable way to do this. Some hypothetical weird way in which you have a you need a license to see a wolf. Okay. I don't know how you do this, but it just winds up being the same way you need a license to fish. You need a license to see a wolf. I don't know if I like where you're going. <laughs> well, hear me out. Oh, okay. So, and you say this license is twenty bucks. 
right? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you're selling hundreds of thousands of these wolf seeing licenses, okay? And it becomes a big thing. And a big part of your budget comes from people buying wolf seeing licenses. At that point, at some point, there's going to be this, like, I used the word reckoning earlier. At some point, there's going to be, like, this reckoning between big game, like, big game hunters who want to see wolf. I'm just speaking very generally. I mean, there are many folds within this. But in a, I would think it's, it's safe to say that, in general, big game hunters harbor some apprehensions about having two, what they would qualify as, too many wolves on the landscape because it's can be detrimental to deer and elk hunting because it can lead to declines in deer and elk. They would, that's an argument they would make. Other people would argue that, um, doesn't really matter. Let nature play its course, blah, blah, blah. And we shouldn't have any harvest of wolves and there should just be as many wolves out there as possible. Now, the minute that if you have a wolf viewing license, all of a sudden, you're going to have, you'd have like this paying constituency of people, and you would probably feel a pressure to maximize wolf sightings. Because you could, the same way people feel pressure now to have a lot of deer and elk out to satisfy guys like me. Like, can you imagine a situation like this where having more payers come in with more opinions that you would, where, where it winds up being that, uh, where it winds up being that there is a battle, it's not like that the pie got, gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, we already get those opinions now. Yeah. I mean, oh, they even, may not be even. paying, but we get all those <laughs> opinions anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, and most species are managed now. I mean, a lot of species are conservation dependent or That's require good, some explain kind that of, term. That's an interesting term. Well, just that we as humans have intervened on behalf of a number of species, whether to help recover them. Like think of grizzly bears and wolves. We wouldn't have the numbers we have now in the landscape if we hadn't spent so much time and money trying to recover them. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's an interesting point because I think that some people fail to see that. They feel that those are there in the absence of action. Right. No, I, I <laughs> I'm yeah, really that's a good point. Conserva- of, I like that conservation dependent. Is there because someone's paying to have them there? Well, yeah, we've we've managed. We have, you know, we've touched them in some way. Um, and wolves, right? You know, I mean, we reintroduce them. Not we, not fish, wildlife, and parks. Because I've had somebody point their finger in my chest, furious yeah. about me reintroducing wolves. And oh, for you, I think you? It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to take, I can't take credit for that. I'm not quite that old. But yeah. um, anyway, I, real quick, I just want to tell that was um, an idea that was initiated at the federal level. Yes. And to varying degrees, the, 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 the impacted states were responded. Were, were, yeah, were, were, were brought in and, and, and it all happened. But it was, it was something that came from the federal level. Right. Did and, not come from a state. Yeah. That's and states right. either had to like figure out how to work with it or there was no option to not. Figure out how to work with it. Right, it was happening. So, so you have species that we've helped recover, um, and then you know, obviously, the species that we have seasons on or allow take. There's some management there, um, 
So we just have had a hand in so many species across the landscape. Think of fish and think of water and returning, you know, in-stream flows or um, habitat, you know, the whole point of habitat conservation. Um, we've just had a hand in a lot of that. So where am I going with that? Um, just mm, there's it's complicated, first of all. And the science is complicated and the social pieces are complicated. I don't see um, the ability, you know, were you to have a wildlife viewing license, which I question that because it's a public resource. But, but there, but there are some. Say, yeah, there's a license you got to get. There's like the McNeil bear viewing area up in – I can't remember yeah. in Katmai or somewhere. You got to like buy, you got to like apply for a tag to look to at bears. To go in and see them. <laughs> to go in, yeah, to go into yeah. the area. Yeah, right? yeah. Okay. So. Um, but that's more of a, it's an access stand. Yeah. It's, it's not like you're buying a license to look at it. You're, it's access. You're getting to, a yeah. place, you're getting a permit to go. Let's say, just Which like you got to get a now. permit to yeah. float to Grand Canyon, right? Yeah. So it's not a rock viewing license. It's a permit to right. <laughs> float when, to Grand Canyon. I mean, you know, if we were to play this out too, when we get so much pressure in certain places, that might happen. You know, how many people do you want to, when you love a resource to death, can that happen? But so say you even have that kind of input, you're still, I can't imagine a day when uh, state fish and wildlife agencies don't need hunters to help manage a species. I don't want, I wouldn't want to make our staff, our employees go out and be the, I mean, I remember the days of the firing squad of bison coming out of, of Yellowstone Yeah. versus having hunters do it. So I don't see, I just playing it out, I don't see hunting going away for a number of reasons, but one is that management aspect. And I think it'd be ugly to have firing squads instead of having that opportunity to be outside, and also this sustainability point. What's in your freezer? Yeah, you know, I have elk in my freezer, and I don't. I don't typically buy meat. And I think many people who hunt and live in Montana, they hunt in part for that. They hunt for the experience, but they also want the food. Do you guys then always strongly advocate like pro hunting, or, or I guess not so much that you'd be advocating pro hunting, but when? Seems like lately, every time um, we have a uh, an opportunity, there's like an anti-trapping bill that seems to come up, right? Yeah. So they're probably not a huge part of that fifty million dollars that comes in, but there's some. Yeah. And some people look at it like that's just the edge, and if that goes, then the next thing is bow hunting or whatever. Yeah. So does does FWP always stand at that front line and and try to protect that? Yeah, that depends who you ask. I would say many trappers would argue we don't enough. Mm -hmm. The anti-trapping people would say we do too much. Um, I, I think we it's a balance that's that's not easy. We support trapping as a harvest heritage. We support trapping, and I don't think want it, we don't want it to go away mm -hmm. as a part of our heritage. At the same time, it's I don't think we should be too far out on that um, on the front line there because we're we're not set up to be an advocacy organization. An example is when there's like a trapping initiative, it's against the law for our agency to take a stance on an initiative. We don't 
step into that political fray. But I remember when the when they were a few years ago, there was that there was a a public vote out yep. a referendum, and it was to ban trapping on public land. Right. And I feel like it was someone within Fish and Game who was talking about uh, we don't have the money to deal with all of the beaver complaints that would happen if people couldn't trap beavers. So that was before I was director. But I think we we got challenged actually on on, um, a piece of, of, I think it was like a trailer or something. We got challenged on going too far in advocacy toward um, trapping. So Is that right? So someone be, pointed out, like, you're oh, not, yeah. that's not your job. Stay out of it. Yeah. Not you specifically, but the, someone within the agency. Yeah. 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 So we have a, we have a fur bear trailer that we, we, we loan to trapping groups to do, help do education on trapping. Mm-hmm. And the circumstance was this trailer was being used by a trapping group that was also at the time. Where they were using the trailer, they were also av- they were also uh, advocating in a, in opposition to this uh, ballot initiative, uh. and so the we were cha- we were challenged because we were they looked at us as having playing politics, right? And so as soon as what the the specifics of that, as soon as we found out that th- that we were in that sort of area of conflict, we just took the trailer back, but that wasn't enough to ward off a. A lawsuit. So we so can you, provide if, facts. Yeah, but in that situation, you can't. So let, let's say there's a trapping ban situation. You can't come out and say, um, you can't come out to voters and be like, I can tell you one thing, fish, wildlife, and parks don't like it. That's mm-hmm. really not if it's an initiative. And that's a that's uh. a that's a statute. So I don't know if that's different yeah. in other states, but that's yeah. the way no it is kidding. in Montana. You just got to roll with it. But at the time, at the moment, we do say um, we think trapping is an important part of our harvest heritage, and the harvest heritage comes from the Constitution. That's why we say it that way. Got so, you. So um, this sounds like a very uh, buzzy word. Like it would be like I'm, cool to yeah. say these days, but you're saying that it's been that's been written in, the written in there. Yeah. yeah. So, but what you raise though is a, a really good question on. What's the department's role when um, we see societal changes and when, you know, perceived ethics of trapping or a certain method of take or when there's a shift, what is our role and how do we play into that? And I I don't have a good answer to that, but I think you've, you've hit something that we totally have to pay attention to. We know our educational programs are really important. Trapping education, hunter education, um, uh, aquatic ed, aquatic ed, all the um, parks. We do a lot of education in our parks. So, so I mean, you know, there's a role for education and and continuing this sort of heritage piece. Um, education doesn't count as direct advocacy. Well, and it doesn't matter. It's it's the lang- the legislature. The statute's specific to like ballot initiatives yeah. or something like that. I mean, so we we do we provide the so this trailer, this trapping trailer for bear trailer that we talked about, that we we loan that out all the time. And we provide grant money to um 
I think it's the Montana Trappers Association is a group to help with some of their educational programming. So we do on that in that standpoint, we're supportive of that on all sorts of different fronts. It's the when there's a ballot initiative specific, and that's and it's just come up in the last few years with the trapping initiatives. That's where we don't take a stance. We're prohibited by law to take a stance. And I think that's, to, to your point, I think that's what raises some people's frustrations. They say, well, you're the agency that licenses licenses this activity. Like you depends. should be advocating for it. Right. right. You know, but right. then your uh, issue can get a certain point uh, where it hits whatever in its process of enactment where you're like, Right. You're, at that point, you got to be like, my opinion's now stepping away. And right. you know what? Yeah. I feel like that happens all the time, too, when someone doesn't like something we've done or they don't like what we haven't done, where we're quiet. It's really hard to explain to people what our sideboards are to say, we can't do that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I'm thinking like with bear management now, I'm thinking of when we um, say – when a legislature, legislator says, I'd like you to spend Pittman-Robertson on um, enforcement, and we say, but we can't do that because it's not, an elig- it's not eligible under P- Pittman-Robertson. It's really hard to describe those things. That's where you know the engaged public, they're passionate. That's awesome, but sometimes they don't believe us. When we say, well, we can't do that under the Endangered Species Act or we can't do that under Pittman-Robertson. and But we – and we can do this. So that's just, you know, the nature of our, our work. Yeah. You know, seldom does someone come up to me and say something like, you know who does a hell of a job? Oh, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. <laughs> fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Oh. <laughs> uh, but, I send I I mean when I put gas in my car at the gas station I get lots of comments. Often someone people be like tearing it up, great yeah. job. No, I'm gonna start <laughs> making my new thing. I, I I find myself in a situation where I do try to like um I do try to talk not just you guys specifically but everyone. I try to say like all in all like when I step back and sort of look at the country, um all in all I feel like fish and game agencies are like that system works. I mean there's some wrinkles here and there, but I mean generally. Mm-hmm. Everybody can go hunt and fishing, you know, to, like in very like broad general points. Like something's functioning well, and there's mechanisms you know, where you come and file your complaints. But do you, in terms of like no one does anything right, do you guys feel like uh, you should be able to take a victory lap about wolves now? Because like well, none I think of the, it's working by and large. It's they're working not all, pretty well. They're not all gone. They didn't go back extinct, right? Uh. People aren't super frustrated because when they got to like stand helplessly by and watch them slaughter all their cows out in the in the by the haystack, it's like, do you get to go like, ha, told you? No, 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 we never <laughs> get to do that. No, I mean, I think we should celebrate recovery when they're yeah, you can celebrate it, but um, no, I don't think it's ever that. That's a mistake people make. I believe with the Endangered Species Act. Or certain species, they view it as a switch. Mm-hmm. Like they're not enough, and then all of a sudden we're okay, and you can walk away. Yeah, I don't think wildlife listens to a power switch. You know that it's okay one day and not okay the other day, yeah, and then okay again. It's part of a continuum. So, is it a success that's worth celebrating? Yes, but is our work ever done? 
no, because there are plenty of people who would like to have fewer wolves in northwest Montana, and yet there are people around Yellowstone who use wolf wolf watching as an important economic driver. Yeah. I would like to see more. So we're not naive enough to think that our work is done. You never like, got it. Permanent. Yeah. Um, got it. We can learn from good things. I'll promise not to bring up wolves anymore. Oh, it's okay. I, I'm only bringing. I mean, I only say that because not that you have a problem with me bringing them up. But I imagine it's just like it's one of those things that probably if you imagine how many like like if you Matt, you were talking earlier about how big like a piece of pie is. Yeah. If I imagine your brain as a chunk of pie, the wolf slice is probably big. Well, the elk <laughs> slice is big. Oh, what's bigger, the wolf slice or the elk slice? Well, well it depends on the year. Depends on the year, but I feel like when I go talk to landowners, like I can go talk to landowners about wolves or bears, and they'll pull me aside and they'll say, listen, what I really want to talk to you about is elk. <laughs> so, so, really, so if you imagine like where your sort of thoughts, like if you imagine there's this pie and it's your head, and there's the, the wedges represent different animals. Yeah. And I'm not saying this is what you wish you could think about, but it's like when it all said and done and all the things you got to look at and consider um, – Grizzlies, wolves, elk are big, huge pieces of pie. They are, and they're like the whole per- pie. Budget, personnel, fish. No, it's only animal pie. Climate change, <laughs> aquatic invasive species, disease, chronic wasting disease. So you're not willing to just have it be an animal pie. I'm there's not. all these other there's I all wish. these other things. Listen, there. I wish it was only an animal pie. <laughs> the well, harder things sometimes are are the human the human pieces of the pie. There was a commission meeting just uh six weeks ago where a chunk <laughs> of the meeting was on a good chunk was on Trout, kind of a trout versus walleye debate. Oh, and it was as animated as our meetings can. People get. are getting riled. Okay, give me the just They're getting ooh, riled up. Give me, give me real quick. What oh, are the uh, thanks? Laid out. <laughs> what, what, what are the what's? Oh, we see are we talking both. cutthroats? Are we talking other? Inter- so are they talking to introduce rainbows versus introduce walleyes. What are we talking about? Well, it's, so the it was the Upper Missouri River Reservoir Plan where we have a multi-species system. That includes a very uh, healthy uh, walleye fishery yep. and a very healthy uh, rainbow trout fishery. Oh, so it's rainbow rainbow v walleye. Well, it wouldn't but be. How would you balance them or not? Oh, walleye. Yeah. <laughs> the rainbows aren't from here anyways. It's just one introduced well, species versus another. At least one's, so one's better to eat. These are native. So do you. Oh, no. Or is walleye native? Well, so the well, people the who showed up that think that walleye is native. Sure. You, yeah, there's no way that one didn't are. come up that river high enough. Are you? So are you on the, you are on the, on the side of the debate that walleye are a Montana native? Let's just say, okay, do I think that historically walleye were coming up the Missouri far enough to hit Montana? I mean, of course, come on. Fish do wild stuff, right? Fish turn up. I mean, you got a wolf from the UP of in the Michigan upper, that winds in, up down in Missouri. So did like a wolf wind up there? I mean, did a walleye wind up there? How about the upper Missouri watershed, though? I don't know how high up. Well, they could one got lost and went they, way the hell up there? Sure. <laughs> well, so historically, from, from, from what, what our research has, or not ours, but I mean the research we've collected and looked at, the Great Falls was a barrier. So above Great Falls was a cutthroat, West Slope cutthroat fishery, which is kind of cool. 
Yeah. Uh, but, you know, with, with dams and everything else, I mean, there's no doubt that we have some, we have some spectacular walleye fishing in the upper mm-hmm. Missouri reservoirs. But so, so the multi. And yeah. not but. Can I, can I talk more about and, what I, I want to clarify what I think ought to happen. Okay. If it's walleye v. cutthroat, cutthroat win because they're a native fish, super native fish and imperiled and to some extent. Walleye v. Rainbow, I'm just going to go with walleye because I like them better. Yeah. Well, so the so the so the balance that we do is we manage for both of them. Mm-hmm. So we 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 in this one we try trying not, to keep everybody happy. We're trying not to pick winners <laughs> and losers, and uh, throw in the mix uh, the perch fishery, which is really important to the to the both the walleye and the rainbow fishery. Okay. And so we, so there's a lot of going, there's a lot of moving parts in that upper Missouri reservoir plan, but right downstream of the last dam is the fabled Missouri blue ribbon trout fishery, the tailwater fishery where, uh, up until this this meeting, we were, it was a unlimited take on walleye because there was just no, we didn't want any walleye in that. And that's where the the heat got into the room was trying to, you know, the passion on both sides of the fishery debate. Man, that's, that's an interesting point. Cause, uh, there's a, there's a thing where, you know, you can use set lines in the lower Yellowstone. It's like a great way to catch catfish. I've heard that they're now, you, know, you talk about like all the different people getting mad at each other. I heard now there's catfish guys who are gunning for set lines because the set liners catch all the catfish. So it's not even walleye guys v. rainbow guys. It's like catfish guys v. catfish guys. Everybody's. So. Everybody's duking it out. Right, right Martha? They all write you letters. <laughs> <laughs> um, fan mail. Um, so. So. Does. There's a little piece of that that I find. Um. Funny, odd uh-huh. that we're fighting. It's it's a, a another way to put it would be. Oh, that's not. I probably shouldn't say that. No, no, we're, no, no go ahead. A first world problem, but that we're fighting over a plethora of riches. I mean, instead of early on going back to the theme of the the origin of the North American model, the Pittman Robertson Act, where they're um, depleted resources. Now we have a lot of resources and we're fighting over them. And yeah. I just I just sometimes think we we miss the big picture of we should all we have more in common than we're willing to let on. You know what day and my we're kids fight at the little things. My kids fight the worst on? Yeah. About ten AM Christmas morning. Yeah. There you, the riches there you inspire. go. There you go. Then they got something to fight over. <laughs> Who got what? And I'm not discounting it. The living room's drowned in toys and they turn on each other. (laughs) (laughs) The witching hour. Yeah. Uh, Loving it to death. Okay. Talk about what what, what do you mean when you talk about- What does that mean? Well- What what does it mean to you? Loving it to death? What it would mean to me would be what happens in- uh, What would mean right now would be like what happens during uh, archery elk season in Colorado. Pretty much every season in Colorado is loved to death. 
right? Because, be the, because so many people want to go and they want to go and have the experience and the state's like, hell, come on out. And it makes it that it just creates like a over, it creates what I would feel like an overwhelmingly negative thing. And by trying to participate in something that's supposed to be great, all of those people participating in it diminishes and cheapens it and makes it not special. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, that Colorado elk are, uh, but they're being loved to death by other user groups as well. Yeah, yeah I know. Big time. Like and may, maybe even more than than too many archery hunters. I feel uh, like a lot of archery hunters certainly worsens your experience out there. But we've talked when we talked with uh, Bill Andre from the Colorado Parks and Wildlife. You know, he's talking about um, just hikers and backpackers and mountain bikers that are in the mountains. 24-7, 365 days a year. There is no off-season. There is no shoulder season there right. anymore. Um, I lived there 10 years ago, and just now I was back this year, and just, you know, trailheads that would have a car or two or maybe none at certain days of the week. Now, every single day of the week, all the time, there's overflow parking for every single trailhead, <laughs> and those animals just do not get a break anymore. Yeah. Um, so that's a form of loving to death. Yeah, I'd say so. And then the loving to death of, I think, just like the like the amazing number of non-resident uh, hunters that the state lets in. I'm saying that from a non-resident. So, so that'd be loving to death. Or here, let me give you another loving to death, because here's what I want to talk about. <laughs> like a river, for instance. When I go down, there's a river near here, mm. the Madison. Oh, I've never heard of it. Um, In the old days, when I was a young man, um, I don't know, some people around the river, but now you go down there on a Saturday in the summertime and it's like, it's like a, a parade and you're talking even like you. inflatable swans. <laughs> I mean, it's like a parade. Have you taken your, uh, kids down and done that? No, hell no. I wouldn't take them to do that. They're, uh, you can rent those <laughs> inflatable swans. Yeah, I've I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I want inflatable mattresses. I remember one time seeing, you know, this metal, um, Watering troughs. I've seen a metal watering those. trough on the on the Missouri on a Fourth of July weekend. Yeah, not to, so, be, not to be crude, but at a certain point, is the amount of urine in the water that's produced by all those floaters does it start to hurt the fish? Does the biology? it? It depends on if there's an offset with beer. Can beer offset the impact <laughs> of urine? So we got the situation where you have this river and everyone wants to go there and they want to float down the river and. Someone might look and say, um, what was special about this, right? That it was like a way to, it's, it's this naturally scenic, it's beautiful. You can drift down this river and kind of visualize yourself getting lost in time. It's this landscape that just from a cursory look. Um, Carved. Yeah, it could be like, I don't know, I'm here 500 years ago, like, if I was here 500 years ago, it'd probably kind of be like this, you know, and it's special and people go there. But then one day, so many people go there that now it doesn't do what it did. Now it's just a circus. So like, how, like whose responsibility is it to police this? Is it anyone's? Who's supposed to say like, hey, now some of you can't go. Because we're just going to let a couple people go and it'll be special to them and everyone else stay home. 
Well, let me ask that back. Who do you think ought to have a say in who should police it and what that would look like? I mean, do you, I would just look to – that's a good question. The constituents. Yeah. yeah. What are our constituents? What are the constituents? Well, you're even talking about different land, like different land ownership stuff. Yeah. Well, let me let me back up. So when I talked about fish, wildlife, and parks, you know, what is our job? Our mission is to steward uh, fish, wildlife, parks, recreational resources for, for today and for future generations. And then as we've gone around the state and talked to a number of people and went through a whole process internally to figure out, what it, like, what does that really mean? And that our charge is to protect the integrity of the Montana experience outside. So, so we're, we're not Colorado right now. We're not Utah. We're not other states. What is, what is the Montana experience, and how would we protect the integrity of that experience? So that's what our charge is. So in, I would argue it is our job to look at that, whether it's the experience of hunting, it's the experience of trails on lands we manage, um, and it is um, the experience on the Madison. So I believe we do have a role in it, and there's a statute that directs us to address social conflicts on rivers. Now, oh, is that right? Yeah. Like a specific thing yep. that's to like fight out social conflicts. Yeah, and I on remember rivers. on rivers. I remember. Sitting, Man, they, don't, they didn't. They didn't forget anything, did they? You could go back to the legislative history on that. I was sitting in the legislative hearing the day that language got added into that statute, and I remember I was like this fresh lawyer. I didn't, you know, I was somewhat new to the process, and I so remember you came out of a law background. Yeah. yeah, and I was, I was, I thought that day. I thought, whoa. What is that going to mean? Is that's a good thing or it's hard? So, so we do have that responsibility. Now, how we apply it is super tricky. Um, and I would argue the best way to apply it is to go through some sort of robust public process where we do hear from everyone. You hear from you know, if we're talking about the Madison, you hear from the people who live in Annis, you business owners, the people who live there and don't own a business, Virginia City, Nevada City, people who live in Bozeman, non-residents. I mean, think of all the different people who use the Madison. And I don't believe that we can turn back the clock on what's happening there. I think that's tough. But we can certainly think about what's happening now and look to the future. I, it's not easy. But, I mean, I look at the Smith River. I look at other rivers that are permitted. Do we want to do that? Greg and I were talking about it. Do we want the same experience on all of the rivers? Like, should the Boulder River or the Yellowstone be the same as the Madison? Um, yeah. I think we have to listen to the public and go through and we have here, but go through a, a really public process and, and sort through that collectively without us stepping in and dictating it. But My opinion here doesn't matter. It's what collectively we do. But at some point, because right now we're just talking about the, all the user experiences, at some point when you have to step the in resource. and say, yeah, 
Yeah. Well, we have, oh, to, we, yeah, we good... have to be the voice for the, for the habitat and, the, and all the things that live in it and on it. Yes. And to date, um, and I mean, this is all part of what's going on. I think the people who don't want to see uh, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks or the commission to step into this, the issue on the Madison – um, because to date there has not been a biological impact, there hasn't been an impact on the fisheries. I think we're we're seeing that um, we're starting to see that, and and in the next year or so, I'm, I'll be really curious. I do think it's our job to get that data and understand that better. So I, I want to just clarify this yeah. for for folks. No, you're doing a bang up job, and I'm probably gonna. I'll be accused of like someone will say like, oh, you're telling the obvious. So <laughs> uh, we're looking at – we're talking about two different things where you, you have a river. Yes. Okay, and the river has too much boating traffic. You could be invited in to police the experience and that's one thing. So you talk about you have the ability to monitor like social stuff, meaning like in the absence of it being fish habitat or whatever. Right. Just like – that you can monitor, like, what kind of experience? Is it crowded or not crowded? But then there's another avenue of approach into this question where you could be in a situation where no one has any problem with the crowding. Everyone loves the crowding. They wish there was more crowding. But it turns out the fish don't dig it. Yeah. And at that point, you can also yes. – You also have legal authority. Yes. On behalf of the fish, yes. regardless of what anybody thinks. Not regardless of what anyone thinks. I mean, we still could step in, but you still will get public input. Yeah. So there's a that's that mix of, of the biological science and social science. I would argue, you know, biological science is critical. It should be the underpinning. We also have learned we need to pay attention to social science too. There are very few things I think we deal with that doesn't have some social impact. Sure. So. Um, but that's yeah. good. I'm glad we're so linked to the natural world. So when that, you, yeah, when, that's a good thing. You you mentioned the, the the Smith River. So there's a river. There's a very isolated, very wild river called the Smith River, and yeah. and it's quintessential people, Montana. Yeah, people do multi day floats on it, and you got to like draw yeah a permit to go float the river. It's not like you don't you don't go down there for an hour. It's like you get a permit, you do it's a, a float. commitment. Yeah, you, you do you do a river trip. Mm-hmm. Um, could you imagine? A, a, is there a way to have a version of a permit system that you need to get a permit to go float in a tube for an hour? I mean, I'm all for it, but I mean, like, is that is there a way to do that? Mm. I don't know. First come, first serve. Like, I, like you know, what I mean, like, what could it look like? Um, I, I guess I don't know yet. I mean, this is somewhat new territory for us, and we've not had – I sound bureaucratic here, but it's the truth. We haven't had the capacity and the money to put the work into getting um, – studying this better and setting up a good system to address. It just hasn't come up yet. Well, it's come up, but it's not popular, and we haven't had the support to really plan it out. But if you think about the Smith River – the precursor to, and I'm not saying that we want to permit all rivers. I'm not at all going there. For uh, this, a lot of them don't need it. I mean, right, right. Yeah. And we wouldn't want that. I mean, you know, because then people aren't getting outside and it, it 
experiencing it and then loving something else too because they got to grow up going on the river, whatever. Mm-hmm. But the Smith River, um, first there was a, a, a study of the resources. There was a study of use and resources on the Smith River that led to permitting there. And so what I'm saying, I think, is we're getting pushed river by river to address conflict, whether it's on the West Fork of the Bitterroot or on the Madison. You know, people are coming to the agency to say, we want you to address this. Um, I'm saying I would love down the road to be able to uh, look at it across the state holistically so that we're we're realize that if we – do something on the Madison, how might that impact the Yellowstone? Or when we had regulations on the Beaverhead and Big Hole, how did that impact the Madison? And making sure we have all sorts of different kinds of opportunity. So we're not saying every every opportunity, every river has to be the same. I, I don't, I'm not arguing that. Well, and I think on the Madison is a really unique spot sort of because that lower river – is is so the the experience during the summer months is so much geared toward that that sort of non-consumptive crowd not that not that they don't consume because they do but they we that we don't permit people you mean like the bird watchers and the riparian uh, no, no, partiers man the partiers they're oh. <laughs> they're con, they're consumptive in a different way but they but we so yeah they 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 they, they use up years of my life the right the ones and, in the inflatable swans the ones in the inflatable swans but 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 on a given uh summer weekend summer saturday there may be thousands of people on that that lower stretch of river and there and there's a there's a there's a, a businesses in my, in Bozeman that that serve that crowd that 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 value that use isn't the primary debate that that comes to us the primary debate that comes to us is on the upper river mm-hmm. and it's on the the commercial outfitting versus the wade angler versus the non-commercial outfitted user or the yeah non-guided user and the, and so that's where right now that the the debate is the hottest oh you're saying that that on a river on this river there's more of a debate around people arguing between who's got a guide and who's wading from the beach and who's in a boat but not with a guide. Like they're duking it out more than who's here to party and who's here to fish. Well, think of, if you think about it for us, for like kind of how it gets to us, like there, there isn't the constituent that, that buys a six pack of PBR and, and a black inner tube and tops in and floats down the river and has cutoffs. He doesn't show up at the public meeting. Yeah, they don't have like a. He's not like in the Montana mm. Tubers Association, right? That's right. That's right. And truthfully, this comes to the commission, right, in the form of a, a in a formal petition. So that already, you know, weeds people out. Uh, Who's going to bring a petition for the? Commission? But but if you yeah, think I about, like to drink beer and float, and I'm starting a group. Right now, you're you haven't shown up yet. But if you're, but if you want that sort of solitude uh experience wade fishing like up a three dollar bridge you know that the salmon fly hatch is on you've hiked down the river two miles you've got this couple holes you're gonna fish you want that solitude 
you've earned it, you've you've put in the time, you've you've done all everything right, and then you have a whole bunch of people floating by. Your you might your dissatisfaction with your experience might, that that is where that opinion is what's coming to us now. Also, the you know Ennis Chamber of Commerce, the you know the uh, Outfitters and Guides Association. We're hearing from those groups saying, you know, hey, you can't if you're gonna you really got to be really thoughtful if you're gonna limit how many outfitters because we like selling stuff yeah yeah you know what you know what uh you know what group you're going to regret you ever heard of who when we we get uh we're gonna start the rocky mountain squirrel foundation (laughs) and you want to talk about having to be in your bonnet man (laughs) bring it on no they don't you guys want to see a lot more squirrels you guys don't they don't manage squirrels well, the isn't I mean I I believe I'm, I'm stepping out, uh, but aren't those uh, foxtail squirrels? They're invasive. Foxtail, fox yeah. squirrels, fox squirrels. No, I don't think so. I think they came up. You think they came uh, up? Came up the corridor. They came. They rode the backs of the walleye right I think up. They came there. up. They rode on walleye. <laughs> Here's the thing, though, man. To be honest with you, I don't want there to be. It's counterintuitive. I don't want there to be a formal season and a formal bag limit because I feel that if there was people would be tuned into it. Like the minute you make it a thing. Yeah. Like you remember how like people used to just go and like you might go fishing and maybe shoot something too, right? And just that's just what you did and that could happen. Then all of a sudden someone came up with the term like, ooh, let's do a cast and blast. And all of a sudden you like put a name to something and you turn it into something. Right. So I think like if people open up the regs and they see rules about squirrels, they're going to get all interested. I'd rather, I like it. The one of the I like it that there's just no mention of it. And then it doesn't become like a thing. Yeah. But what I'd like to see is more of them dropped off here and there. <laughs> like a lot more money into Rest doing. Rest in rotation to give them a break. bucket biology on squirrels, man. Hey, no bucket biology. <laughs> we, that's just a stance we got to make. Yeah, yeah. yeah you just, yeah, that's yeah, your foot down. Uh, okay. We talk about loving it to death and what like, and it's interesting to know that you're actually like, a, there's a mandate, an agency could have a mandate to regulate people's social fighting what do you feel so this is a whole new topic that i want to ask you about um earlier we talked about like who owns wildlife right <laughs> we talked about it really matter of factly like oh everybody knows the wildlife is oh, owned not by the, everybody knows yeah well, everybody knows wildlife is owned by the people what are um what do you imagine being threats to that and, and, and i know that for you to use the word threat is going to put you in trouble because you're sort of, there's a value judgment with calling it a threat. Like, mm-hmm. what are the chat, like, what do you see as emerging challenges to this thing that we're just accepting at face value as being like, everyone agrees that wildlife is a public, that, that wildlife is publicly owned. Um, but as you pointed out, not everyone agrees with that. Or they understand that it's always been that way, but they would like to see that change. Mm-hmm. Um there's a group. I'm trying to remember what's the what's the the, the Utah group Alex. sportsmen. They come up with oh. sportsmen for wildlife. Yeah, there's a group of sportsmen for wildlife. It's one of those. This is me talking. Not like I want to save you guys any kind of. I'm talking right now, Steve. This, the, I haven't consulted our guests. They're sitting silently. Um, but yeah, like, I don't want to say that group. There are sometimes you'll see a a. a, a eh, never mind. Sportsmen well, different for wildlife. states handle it differently. <laughs> yeah, so sports, there, there's, and I, I could even be wrong, but I feel like Sportsmen for Wildlife, I, I believe, um, that that organization would like to see 
um, would like to see individual landowners enjoy sort of a greater ownership, mm-hmm. speaking very generally, they would like to see landowners enjoy a greater ownership of the animals that are on their property, meaning um, they're not comfortable entirely with the idea that it's public. And it'd be like, if you got, if you own the land, you should be able to have more say in what goes on on it. Um, I'll point out, we've told a story before, but this whole thing comes from um, a long time ago. There was a, there was a Supreme, you know, there was a, a Supreme court decision, among other things where there was a guy and he was, he owned some land on the beach and people would pick oysters, would collect oysters off the beach. And the guy was like, hey, man, um, you can't pick those oysters up. Those are, I own the oysters because I own the land, I own the oysters. And um, and he traced back his ownership of these oysters to some like land grant from the the king of England. So he's like, thereby, it's my, wild, my land, my wildlife. And eventually goes to the Supreme Court. And it's determined that um, with the Declaration of Independence, those things that belong to the sovereign, like those things that belong to the king, became the property of the people. I'm, I'm doing this like very shorthand version. Therefore, you don't own the oysters. Sorry. Like the king gave them to you, but not anymore. We're done with that stuff now. Now we're America and we have this new idea, which is public wildlife. It's not like in Europe where you, you know, the king's deer. Um, how like, do you, cause I know you earlier you were saying you have, you're not able to advocate or you need to be more like a passive bystander as an agency. On an initiative. On an, okay. What about <laughs> something like this? Can you, like, are you able to flex some muscle and stand up for public wildlife or do you just have to be like whatever way the wind blows? Um, if that's the question, well, I mean, I think it's the law. I think it's the the public trust in wildlife is embedded in our um, in the fabric of our country. It's embedded in you know think of people love public lands, public wildlife. It's part of why we have um, some of the species diversity and abundance that we have. Um, so. I don't. It's not advocating for a certain point of view because it is. It, it's a fact of life. It is what it is right now. I got you. Certainly in Montana, now Utah, um, wildlife is monetized more than in Montana, where you know a landowner um, can get landowner tags or whatever. And there's certainly people who are interested in that happening in more places in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I have learned in being director, I mean, there are lots of things that I've had to learn along the way. And I think there's so many sort of unspoken rules and I've tried to learn them and I think we should make them spoken about what we think is different in Montana than say in Utah or Colorado and some of our neighboring states. And I say that to learn that because if our job at Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks is to protect the integrity of the Montana outdoor experience. To protect that, we need to know what might be different here than elsewhere. And I think we, as people, as citizens, whether a citizen of Montana or a citizen somewhere else, as hunters, anglers, certainly as managers, I think we need to understand 
how we got to where we are, that it wasn't by happenstance. Mm -hmm. The fact that we um, have this equitable opportunity in Montana, the fact that wildlife is truly public, that we haven't monetized it, the fact that we have the um, experiences to rivers and um, across the state that we do, it's it's on purpose. It was all, you know, it's part of our, that North American um, model. It's part of our system. And if we don't understand that and we don't understand what makes it different and special compared to somewhere else, how do we make sure that continues? So I, I feel like it's my job to be not necessarily advocating, although I think I'm comfortable here because there's not an initiative or something. This is what yeah, we've developed you. as a state, and I think that makes a state special. Um, it, to pay, it's my job to pay attention to what that is and be um, explicit. If we're going to deviate from that and change it, we need to understand what that difference would mean. So if we were to privatize wildlife and I and and if we were to allow give change what we have now where landowners are treated like anybody else it's an opportunity state um where landowners don't have any rights to wildlife much different than the general public or the, a license holder um if we were to change that what would that mean and we, we certainly could as a state, but I think we need to understand what we have in place now, what makes it special before just saying, okay, it's all right to change that. Because I think when you, as you've said, it's hard to put a genie back in the bottle. Mm -hmm. You know, when you change something or you allow, you give somebody a right, it's a whole lot harder to take that right away than to just not give it to them to begin with or to do it incrementally. So I think in this instance, what makes the experience in Montana pretty special, we better be careful at, at saying, oh, it's fine to change that without really understanding what we're doing. Yeah, does without that inviting make sense? People, No, it does. Without inviting people to understand you know, the, ba the foundation. Yeah. Someone's like, well, why don't we have more landowner tags? You could say, we could. We, have, we yeah, could, but yeah, we, we could, but let's look at how we came to sort of the underlying like foundational principles that yeah. led us to be that we like democratic allocation. Right. And I also think it's really fair to realize like this is inside baseball. This is something we all think about. You clearly think about it and it's great to talk about. But uh, not everybody knows this. We shouldn't assume that people realize how important it is that we do have this public trust in wildlife yeah. that all everybody has a piece of this. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Dugs, and I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on Onyx, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over 
in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. I don't, I don't I, listen, man, I, I rarely go into stores to buy clothes. I like to, I just buy myself online and I love their shirts. Max that I work with, Max Bard, who comes on the podcast one day. I don't know if he sent me a link to this place. I went on and bought some shirts. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing and get like a whole different cut of the shirt. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. They got it started out with a lightweight fishing shirt. Now they make all kinds of other lines. Western, denim, flannel, corduroy. Better fitting. Not, not all baggy. Better performing because they got modern fabrics with some stretch and breathability. And way comfortable. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com. Use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. Hey, you know when you take uh, some time to clean out, uh, let's say, like clean out your garage, and you're like, man, how was I living like that with that place such a mess? Well, check this out. If you've been paying a fortune for wireless and then you switch over to Mint Mobile and get plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you'll be saying, how was I ever affording to do that way I did it before? It's time to switch, okay, to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and get your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater, and you will cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month. Again, mintmobile.com slash meat eater. It's a $45 upfront payment required, which is the equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. It's, it's complicated enough where I have purchased and hunted off of landowner tags. When we talk about landowner tag, what, I just want to tell people what landowner tag is. A landowner tag would be that um, in, in whatever particular game management unit or wherever you're at, they might be the people who own X number of acres um, deserve to get some like payback for them owning land that has animals on it. So if you own 4,000 acres, they're going to give you two deer tags. Everybody else needs to try to apply for a tag and win at a drawing. And then in some cases, you can take your two deer tags and sell them. And that the, wasn't in Montana. No, 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 not. Right. You can sell them to the highest bidder. Um, they're just years to have. And then you get them that way just by the simple fact of owning land, you get tags. And then other people get them the good old-fashioned ways. What I'm saying is I've bought and have been given landowner tags in other states. And even with that, uh, even having done that, I still am a little bit like um, – 
I'm not sure how I feel about them. I remember we had a podcast guest on one time that has a place on the coast, has a place on the California coast. And he doesn't, he didn't say this when we interviewed him, but he had said it elsewhere. Uh, he lives in a house on the beach. And he says, I don't even think you should be able to have a house on the beach. But I'm going to stay in mine until it's illegal. Then I will happily move out once I know that someone else just isn't going to move into it. Huh. So, like, I'm just pointing this out because, like, That's I'm a guy. That's pretty magnanimous. Not everyone would say that. <laughs> but, <laughs> so, it's like, I get them. And I still get them. And I'm still a little bit like, I don't know, man. Is this, like, the right thing? So, what is, is it the that right leads way to you go? about that? Uh, that you are... Um, that you're hunting the king's deer, right? That's what he at me about it. That it's some, that it's tags. And I guess I've, I've had in my life through various ways, four landowner tags, um, or the equivalent of landowner tags four times. And that it would be that, uh, I got those opportunities because of my connection to or my personal being like someone of means. And there was four opportunities that would have been distributed more equitably and more democratically to others. So I went into the woods because of being a man of means or having relations that way. And other people stayed home because they're not. Right? That eats at me. But then you can also be like, oh, life ain't fair. Whatever. Like, there's all kinds of ways well, to write it off. Hard-earned relationships. Yeah, there's like a way. I like, worked I, hard for those. Yeah, we're, yeah you know, I'm <laughs> like, I'm a good friend, right? So, uh, yeah, man, it bounces around. And uh, to if I put in for a draw and, like, draw the tag, dude, I'm elated. Yeah. Guilt-free hunting. <laughs> it's guilt-free hunting. Lucky doc. Yeah. So what I'm pointing, I, I, I'm not, you know what I'm getting at. I'm just getting at the idea that it's like, that there's these sort of ideas out there that, that, um, I haven't even totally unpacked how I feel. You get us on a subject of governor's tags. Talk about some ambivalence. Yeah. Right. I see both sides. Yeah. Well, you know, the interesting thing in Montana and not, not to get down on governor, down the road on governor's tags, but where we're at is, and you know, wildlife management is a is a complex situation that you know, a complex field for us, obviously. But there's a lot of but there, there's a lot of values at the table, and there's a lot of interests at the table, including landowners. We don't get to we don't get to just manage wildlife uh, without sort of considering all those sorts of relationships and those partnerships. And, and we've talked about this a lot in in the. Uh, department recently is it's critical our landowner uh relationships are critical i mean there's a ton of habitat in montana that is critical that's on private land oh if you look at i mean private land private land conservation if you just look at it and whatever is in square units of space private land conservation is more important than public land conservation because more of the country is private land like if they all decided just to piss it all away Everyone's done. We're done. Like we can't have wildlife if private landowners decided that they didn't care about wildlife anymore and they're just going to destroy it all. Of course. Of course. Uh, And no one is suggesting that you should be forced to allow access on your property. Like if you own land and there's animals on it, 
you have, right? And no one can go. No one can go. Right. No one's questioning that. What we're talking about is like, do you own by, the wildlife? By fact of you owning the land, do you then get the animals too? Which is us, it, which would be giving something that didn't previously belong to you to you, right? It's not like you're not riding momentum. It's a new idea. Like, that's the thing. I, I, you know, we, we, I feel like we often get accused of like being down on. I own private land all the time, man. I have, you know, like, I have a lot of friends that, you know, it's bad when people say that. I have a lot of friends that manage land specifically for wildlife and phenomenal stewards, and it's absolutely important. And we're really thankful. Yes. To them. But, right? But, like, do you get to own the stuff that's walking across it? So, I, and I think that sounds too much like a um, one or the other. And uh, while landowners definitely have the right to determine access on their land. Um, and they can determine if there's hunting at all. Oh, yeah, for sure. The piece that is often missing, and I'm going to, in my next director's message or the one after that, talk about this more. I mean, I do think as an agency, we can do a better job of appreciating the conservation and access the opportunities that happen on private land. Like you said, we could not manage wildlife and provide these opportunities without partnering with landowners. Yeah. They're a critical piece, and we're really thankful for that. And so I think you're right. Sometimes when we talk about the public trust in wildlife, it gets too wrapped up in access and and landowners um, letting people on or not. And I think we need to do a better job of just saying private land is critical. They um, play a really important role, not only in the habitat for wildlife and specific wildlife species. They also, I think this, we've talked about this, they're facing these um, global economic forces where I really worry about um, losing long-term landowners on the landscape and, and losing their piece of these rural communities that are also really important for habitat and wildlife species and are important to this Montana way of life. We so a, they're, they're intertwined with what we do uh, and should be. We had the writer Tom McGuane on the show. Oh, and he mentioned how when a ranch Aww. when a ranch gets sold, biodiversity goes down. Yeah, I worry. I, yeah. I'm totally worried about that. I think we should be doing all that we can to support these families that have been on the land for a long time. And we're seeing, right, a, a trend at least in the Midwest of family farms going under, and I, that's going to spell trouble. I believe for wildlife. Yeah, I feel it, and we, water and rural community. I mean, all sorts of things. We had a conversation the other day about uh, when a landowner enrolls in the block management program, which is a public access program. Yeah, where landowners get you know a, a small compensation for, for the letting, impacts for for letting yeah. people. Yeah, a small yeah a small. I don't even know if you call it a payment. A small compensation for allowing public hunting access on their property. I was saying that um, I feel that I wouldn't want to make them uncomfortable. But one should really go up and give them a big hug. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like 
people be like, oh, they're getting paid. It's like, it. Uh, listen, this is not. It, they are not getting paid for not, the access. They're, not get, they're getting yeah. paid for nominally for the impacts the public hunters make yeah. on their life. I was like, you it's should go pittance. up and clean their boots yeah. when you see them. And to have any sort of attitude that you have that they're like, yeah. that you're doing them a favor or whatever by using the access program. And how many is the wrong way of looking at? And I bet you, public you, access. You guys pro- don't do this, but a lot of hunters get the the landowners help them go retrieve their game. I mean, they're out oh, there with the backhoe, yeah. or they're really they're pretty darn no, helpful and to encouraging. Give them, to give them a hug and clean their boots, <laughs> and send them presents if they are willing to allow public access yeah. through through a state program like that. Uh all right, what have, we, what have I not asked you about that you're dying to talk about? Anything? Mm, no. I don't like to talk about myself. So let's see, what topics have we not covered? You skipped grizzly bears, but that's okay. Yeah, we caught wolves a couple times. Okay. We rolled into that. Do you want? Are you dying to talk about grizzlies? Uh, no. Although I think that— Would you like to see, would you like to see your agency take— uh, <laughs> Would you? Oh uh, no! I just asked for this one. Yeah. Would you like to see your agency take over management from the feds and and the, the, the grizzlies sure. go to state management? Sure. Of course, I would. Do you feel if, that you guys would just run them in the ground and then you'd go extinct? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> we better not. You can't. We can't. That's right. We can't. I think people forget that it's our responsibility to make sure they stay recovered. Because they can go right back. No, we couldn't do that. We no, shouldn't. I'm saying that uh, right. if, if the states screwed it up. Could go back to the feds. They would be, right, shooting right. themselves in the foot. But I don't Whatever think- your motivations are, it wouldn't make any sense to have it go bad. No, no. Uh, I think it's just our responsibility. And I do think Montana's been really good at taking, I mean, wolves are an example where we've been measured in our approach. So sometimes yeah. wish we were less measured, but I, it goes back to that switch. I don't think that. You know, one day they're listed and the next they're not, and you can go out and hunt them all. It's a incremental process. Do you do you like to do uh, crystal ball kind of stuff? <laughs> Never have. Um, you, you get what you pay for. Well, I want to ask you, like you looking into a crystal ball. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You get what oh. you pay for there. Oh, meaning I'm not paying anything. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> I thought maybe, Just to be clear, no, you're not paying like, me. <laughs> um. <laughs> Where are we at? Like, are, will will grizzly bears fall to state? Will grizzly bears get pulled off the Endangered uh, Species Act listing and become no, no longer threatened and get handed over to state management in five years, ten years? Someday. You think so? Yeah, someday. I do think so. I've asked. Um, I've asked that to the the head of um, Fish and Wildlife. Well, I've asked the head of. I've asked that to the head of Idaho. Fishing game. Oh, Virgil Moore. I asked or, it to the head of Wyoming's fishing game, and I asked it to the head of Montana's fishing game. Now, and, and, also, and we also asked uh, the fellow that we had. I don't know if he's the head of the interagency. Oh, interagency grizzly bear committee. Yeah, Matt so what, Hogan. Yeah, what uh, we, I I'm haven't. About I haven't to be chair of that. You're the only one I've asked publicly. December. You're the only one I've asked publicly. Oh. The other two I asked. I'm not going to tell you who gave what, but I got one no, one yes. In 10 years, are grizzly bears going to be under state management? Yes. Really? Yes. So I'm at two yeses and one no. Yeah, I 
I feel like we're doing the best we can. So what I would do want to talk about there is I firmly believe that the governor created this grizzly bear advisory council and had pulled we got over 170 applications for 18 spots and it pulled people from all over the state different perspectives and to me that's how we solve issues in Montana that is something that where we do our best work where it doesn't come to the department it's not my opinion that matters or Greg's for that. It's this council where people get together and hash out some of the hard stuff with grizzly bear management, and it is hard, and give a recommendation. That's an example of why I think we will get there and that we're on it with the science. We are committed, and we're getting Montanans really engaged to help us figure out the best best path forward. And I really do think that's the way you do it. You don't have just the feds coming in and saying you do this or you don't do that. It's a it's a collection where we try to figure out what makes the most sense in Montana. You know, uh, I'm not going to ask you to comment on this, but it's a funny observation that all the work that goes into – that went into wolf delisting and it's going into grizzly delisting now. Like, There's all this work that happens. Yeah. And then people always litigate it in such a way that it winds up in the court in Missoula. Yes. Because they know that the judge in Missoula will throw it out. It's like all this work and all this work. And you're like, yeah, but they still got the the, the same person still sits in the the federal court. And so until whatever, I don't know what happens. They retire. Oh, careful with me. I think that we can get it through him. And I say that because when I taught at the law school, I um, uh, the Wolverine litigation, I took my students, um, we read the briefs, we went to the oral argument, he issued his decision, he came to our class and explained his decision and like the good lawyering, the bad lawyering or whatever. And we got to listen and learn through the whole process. So I... I you think still believe in the judicial system. Like you think they, you we'll think that, get it through. That, you think that that individual is actually doing their job and they don't yes. just be like, I don't care how I do it, but I'm going to damn sure make that no one hunts a grizzly bear. <laughs> I don't think that was in the decision. <sighs> I think it's easy I think to that it was lurking. I think it was lurking around. Lurking around. Um, but uh, listen, I don't want you to comment on that. Like, I'm, just, I'm way off into like, you know, just – Hunches, and I know you probably don't get to deal in hunches a whole bunch. I probably shouldn't. But also, doesn't it? Do you feel that it largely depends too on just kind of like how you know? There's, we're going to have either continuation of the same administration in Washington, or potentially a new administration in Washington, and these kind of like big things wind up like being so much bigger than the state, right? Like, oh yeah, right. It'll kind of depend on whatever whatever like high like high level leadership or do you think it do you think that a decision like this could wind up happening regardless of input from Washington DC Yeah I don't think that the change in administrations should have that much of an impact on the Fish and Wildlife Service's decision on whether to list or delist Oh is that right they don't just make a call No and they're they like can't. you know they can't You know what I always laughed about <laughs> uh I'm going to go back to you again to see if you got anything to add but I always laughed about um 
in New York, Bill de Blasio. All the problems, like, you know, he becomes the mayor in New York. Like, everything that goes on in New York, you can imagine all the issues, right? You got Not like, much. Yeah, like everything, like the subways, counterterrorism, and, you know, you know, Russian oligarchs buying up real, like, whatever. All these issues. And I remember Bill de Blasio wins, and he gets the thing, and one of his first actions as mayor is that what this city really needs is to not have carriage horse carriage rides in Central Park because it's mean to the horses. And I remember being like, there's no way that that's something he natively thought of. <laughs> it was someone had said, here, man, here's a bunch of like uh, campaign money. He didn't have a bad carriage ride. But he's like. He's like, and then he wins. He's like, ah, man, I forgot. Now I got to like do something about stupid carriage rides. I promised someone I would do that. Like, and so I, I view that I can't help but view that when the next, that, that when the next presidential election happens, that there's not someone planting in someone's ear, the idea that I will tell you one thing that cannot happen. We do not want to see those bears delisted. And that someone would like that they would uh, apply some level of force in some weird hidden way. Um, I don't have any doubt that someone might plant those seeds, but um, having worked, I yeah, I'm just a dumbass. I'm just a dumbass talking. I mean, yeah, you, no, you have no, a legal I worked, background. I worked in the solicitor's office mm -hmm. for the Department of the Interior on the Endangered Species Act. Okay, and so you're subject matter expert. So, um, so put me at ease. I. We worked our tails off to not have there, – there, there was no political influence in our decision packages on listing or delisting. I know people don't believe that. No, there's no, no one's going to believe that. But, but I, mean, I believe you – you're looking me right straight in the eyeball I, I, telling yeah. me this. And um, so and, – and I think you see that. There hasn't – there may have been a big shift in policy in interior – from administration to administration. But if you look at the decision packages coming out on listing or delisting species, I don't think you're seeing a giant shift. Now, strike me down. People hard left, hard right wouldn't agree with me there. But I think there's so many um, – the law is in play. There's so many systems in place that it's hard – to politically influence those types of scientific decisions. And I don't think I'm just being Pollyanna. I think that's really the way it's set up. Other things, you bet, there's, there's policy influence. But on listing and delisting grizzly bears, I believe they're going to be delisted because Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, we are starting to work together. And I think a lot of people are coming together to make sure we've demonstrated for, if it goes to Judge Christensen, that everything's in place and we've adhered to what's required to delist them. Oh, I but hope you're right. It's just how long? How long out? I believe it'll be done in 10 years. Done in 10 years? Yeah. Oh, man. Why do you so much I'm going to go home and hug my kids. Why do you so much hope that she's right? Why do I hope oh. that, are you asking why do I hope the grizzly bears get delisted? Yeah. Because I feel like it's an instance, it's twofold. One, I feel like it's an instance where people are weaponizing the Endangered Species Act, meaning 
it's beyond any conversation about what the Endangered Species Act is supposed to be used for and what its function is. Mm -hmm. And it's just being weaponized as a tool to get what you would like to see happen. And people are like, they don't want, there's people who do not want to see a grizzly bear and did not want to see a wolf get killed by a hunter. And they weren't debating anymore about whether or not the act had worked, whether or not we had achieved recovery objectives, whether or not the whole system did what it was supposed to do. It stopped being the debate. The debate became like, if they delist, there could be hunting. So I will fight the delisting without articulating that that's why I'm doing it. And they became all these proxies. And so if we delist, do you think it'll be less easy to weaponize it and to continue doing I think it would be, that that's why species? I said it's, it's multifaceted. Because you have to take everything I just said with a grain of salt because I am personally biased for state management of wildlife. And I am uneasy with, this is me talking personally, personally biased towards state management. And I'm generally uneasy with federal management of wildlife unless it's a case where we really need federal management to keep the species from becoming imperiled and going extinct. But in cases of just federal management, because it means that the states wouldn't be able to have a hunting season, I just think that that's a bastardization of what the whole thing's supposed to, how it's supposed to function. So my bias, I'm biased as a hunter. So I'm just pointing that out. Lest someone say everything you're saying about the Endangered Species Act, you're just saying because you like to hunt. I'm like, yes, I like to hunt. And I don't like the ESA being weaponized. There's plenty of things that are not recovered that we, I would argue we should be spending tons of money and energy on saving. That's not one of them. Any way in which we spelled out what recovery would look like back in 1975, we've been there for 13 or 14 years now. Right? So, yeah. I'm going to go home and hug my kids based off of what I just heard. I'm going to be like, children, it will be a beautiful world <laughs> within a decade. <laughs> is, that, is that all fair what I said, Martha? <laughs> oh, I, I don't want to put you in an awkward position. No, no. I mean, I'm, I've, I've already been on the record saying that I believe in the Endangered Species Act. I mean, I do. I also think, I personally think that grizzly bears are recovered because they've met their recovery goals. I think that the states, we actually, with grizzly bears, um, we're, we are sharing in management with the um, Fish and Wildlife Service and Wildlife Services now. I mean, no one entity is doing it alone. So we're already kind of there. We do not have a hunting season. Um, and I think a hunting season is a red herring. I don't think that's the issue. The issue is recovery of long-term recovery of bears or you know, not it is the, it is the issue it is the issue did anyone sue yeah. against delisting bald eagles probably oh yeah, i don't know but probably <laughs> i mean i i say that in that most <laughs> listing and delisting decisions get challenged by people who like them and don't like them above any decision by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to delist or delist a species is likely to get challenged from yeah, both sides. I got you. Everyone. I want to point. I want to go on record. Inherent. That um, I love, like love, love grizzly bears. Love, love, love them. Yeah. How um, come? This is what I'm curious about. What because is you know about what? When bears? I'm in places that don't have them, 
and I'm wandering around, it feels like something's missing. Yeah. I, I like them. Everything about them. I like looking at them. I like being afraid of them. I like everything. Do you like that they're no longer top dog when grizzly Absolutely. bears are around? Absolutely. I love them. I'd like to see them in more places. I want to go on record saying that. I want to go on record saying I'm a staunch supporter of the Endangered Species Act. In like in general, as a thing, like is it always used perfectly? No, it's like I'm in favor of having my kids live in my house. <laughs> Are there like parts of things I wish they would do differently? Yeah, but it's like I want them there. I just wish they didn't. Weren't there all the time. <laughs> yeah, I just pick up when they're done. I don't know. So it's like, yeah, like I love it. It's, it's fantastic. It'd be a worse country without it. But in this case, it's gotten a little silly. And it, just in my personal opinion, I don't want to, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. Well, yeah. And I mean, I agree with you in that I think the Endangered Species Act is there for the species who really need it. And I'd like to be putting more time and effort into those species that really need it. And I think grizzly bears are so far in the continuum of being recovered that I would like to spend the time and money on another species, knowing just like wolves, it's not that switch. We're never done with managing grizzly bears and ensuring their long-term recovery and managing them for the people who live with them. Um, so I think they're biologically recovered. And yes, we're in the business of of managing them for a long time to come. Okay, what else? Was there anything you're like, man, I wish this guy would ask me about? No. You said I didn't ask you about your, you don't want to be asked about your personal life. Well, it's boring. Where were you born? <laughs> I was born on a farm in Maryland. Okay. And um, you went to law school, obviously. In, in Missoula. Have you always been? Public lands law. Public lands law. That's why I went there. No kidding. Yeah. So have you always worked in the public sector? Yep. Yep. You're never like an ambulance chaser? <laughs> I probably should have been. My my kids would like it maybe better. Yeah, yeah. But um, no. No, I mean like so you've, you. All, you've, always worked around, just, you've always worked around land and wildlife issues. Yes. Yep. Yep. The land and being outside is just in my blood. and It's just was my way of giving back. What kind of farm did you grow up on? Um, subsistence. My, you know, we had steers, pigs. Milk cow, chickens, um, wheat, corn, oh, hay. Good, I got you. Big big garden. My parents are in their late 80s and are still running the farm. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And they taught me, like we always knew when the swallows came in and left and would see the different times, you know, how that's changed over time. My mom taught me all of the plants in the woods we would sleep out in the um, rows of straw in the summer nights, just out in the middle of the... I remember getting lost in a cornfield once because I was teeny, and the corn was, you know, way above my head, and my parents didn't know where we were. We were just running around in the cornfield. Yeah. Children of the corn, man. It's scary. Children, <laughs> when yeah, you're a little kid, it's scary out in a cornfield, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They should have been worried. So uh, what year did you move to where you to Montana? I went to – moved to Missoula to go to law school in 91, I think. Mm -hmm. And I spent my high school and college summers in Wyoming working on a ranch. Gotcha. So it made me – I always loved the land but was psyched to get away from the East Coast and just fell in love with public lands. And you got, and, some, you got some kids mostly raised up. Yeah, and they're proud Like at this point, whatever here. they're going to be, there. there's nothing you're going to do about it now. Isn't that scary? 17 and 19. But they're turning into really nice people. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> I yeah. think. Good job. 
And they love the outdoors. That's a good way, like, when you're all done parenting. You're like, never done. No, no, you're never done. I mean, you're like, a good done. thing would be, like, in the end, be like, how'd it go, right? To be like, you know, they're pretty nice people. Yeah, because there are <laughs> right? a lot of things like, that I did what? wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the measure, right? Right. Well, they're, so, pretty, they're pretty nice. Let me tell you this nice. one thing. I we They grew up on adventure points. Have you ever heard of adventure points? No. no. So um, we had a board where if they added up their adventure points, we could get a certain trip. So like once when we were in um, Yellowstone oh, on a really gone. cold night, I mean, I think it was like minus 30 degrees. And I was like, if you – it was in New Year's. We went out cross-country skiing um, to ring in New Year's. And they're like, Mom, it's freaking cold out. I'm like, you get 20 adventure points if we go out skiing to ring in the New Year. And they're like, yes! Oh, I, I'm adopting this. <laughs> I, I'm that was the best. And the only way they could trade them in was for the next adventure. So That's great. Uh, not for chocolate bars. No. Because that's what my girls would like to trade them in for. <laughs> You know, uh, well, well I think, you know, whatever you want. Think about be, like that the idea of like being a nice person. My uh, my beloved sister in law was recently in a she's in a vehicle accident. She's oh, everybody's fine. She's fine, but someone else is at fault. You know, and they like crash into her car, and it turns out they don't have insurance. Hmm. So I'm on the phone with her, and um, I'm like, "Why? Well, you know, I guess you're gonna have to go after this guy. What are you gonna do to go after him?" And she's like, "You know, he seems to have a lot of." Um, problems right now so that's not something I'm going to do and she goes in fact I'm I got to go because I'm supposed to give him a call and see how he's doing (laughs) which kind of melted my heart right you know what I mean like pretty nice person it's okay to be a nice person (laughs) isn't it (laughs) not just wake up every day be like I'm going to make someone pay (laughs) you know ouch maybe are we all like that because we um, like to be outside so much I like to think that people would like to be outside, but man, I don't know. Claude Dallas was outside all the time. We talked about him the other day. Oh. Anomaly. <laughs> Outlier. Yeah, I do. I have a lot vested. I have a lot um, in child raising. Um, I've thrown down pretty hard. Like my whole thesis is sort of based around the idea that outdoor experiences um, and all that goes with them, the people, everything, that, that that's a path toward parenting success. I hope I'm not wrong. So if I'm wrong, I'm going to be real wrong. <laughs> it shapes who you are. Because I've really, like, pounded into them that that's <laughs> important. So if I if that's screwed up, then I'm just going to have to rely on luck after that, right? Well, let's visit in 20 years. I hope we're all on some sort of similar path, right, Greg? Yeah. I hope my kids are all nice. Yeah. Nice and happy. Yeah. Yanni, what else you got? Yeah, I'm just thinking I got a uh, wife's out of town tonight, so I got to cook dinner for them by myself and wrangle them into bed. I Doing adventure I, points. I, I, hope, I, hope they're ni- <laughs> I hope they're nice to me tonight. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh you got, uh, I'm supposed to, you, I owe you like a night of babysitting. You haven't redeemed. Oh, yeah. We'll get to that. Um, real quick. I know that in the last couple, three years, I think we've been, as Montana has been selling out a non-resident ta- tags, mm-hmm. elk and mule deer. Yeah. That number's pretty much capped, right, for how many, and it's until the uh, commission decides to change it. It's, it's statutory. No, it's statute. Oh. 
legislature. It was a ballot initiative that capped it. Um, and I can't remember what year that was. So that'll stay at whatever, what is it? It's like 11,000 or something like that? Uh, there's a couple of numbers and uh, it's 17,000 for deer elk combos. Um, so that the non-resident deer elk combos are capped at 17,000. And we, we had a time where we weren't selling out because of, when they capped it, then the that initiative raised. There was a year of sticker oh, shot. Right, yeah. a couple of years of sticker <laughs> shot. And so now, but we've been selling out uh, the last three years. Yeah, and now we're, we're selling them out sooner and sooner mm-hmm. each year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But until another ballot initiative comes, that number will stay. Or legislative. Yeah. I mean, it can, it, the legislature could change that mm. without a ballot initiative. No. With you, or without. I hope they can make it that it can't be changed. It can only be lowered. <laughs> constitutional <laughs> but my question is what are uh, resident tag uh, numbers doing so the resident tags have been um, pretty steady what we're so unlike some states where the resident tags are going down mm-hmm. or there are fewer people participating in Montana um, we've had steady participation and we're also seeing or we think is that um, more of our licensed buyers, are buying more types of licenses. Uh, so um, that's a good, I think that's a good sign. So all you ever hear about is declining hunting participation. Not here yet, Not yet. but we can't rest on our laurels, I don't think. Well, well we, we hear a lot about that, but I feel like we also hear about like the the buzz is like, yeah, that's what they say, this R three stuff. But when was the last time you went into the woods and felt like we needed more hunters? Because the out people there? that the people that hunt are more diehard and are more likely to travel and hunt multiple states, man. That's our theory. I think it's backed up by some data. Well I don't know what our how our data would speak to that, but I I think, you know, we you've got and whenever we talk about R three, you have people that say just that. Like, I don't know, I, I went out to my block management area and there was, you know, 12 trucks at the... Too many. Right yeah, I used to be pro R3, but, but I'm reconsidering. But <laughs> I was just in Wisconsin over the weekend and it's and it was the same when I was there two years ago for opening week of Rifle compared to when I was a kid and even, you know, in, maybe into my early 20s. It was It's a marked difference on Saturday morning, the amount of shooting that you hear. A lot and, more. No, a lot less. Oh. Where? In, in Wisconsin. Huh. And we go and visit with all the neighbors, usually at some point, either before a season or, or, you know, over the weekend. And there's just, it's the same thing. It's like the elders aren't, like, they're getting old, and so they're just not really making it into the woods. And then you go to that camp, and there aren't the um, younger cousins or nephews mm-hmm. or grandkids. And even in the camp that I was in this weekend, I mean, I was the youngest there by... 30 years? <laughs> <laughs> you? Okay, maybe, maybe I'm... A lot. Yeah, close to it. Close to 30. Well, yeah. That's something. Well, I think the you know, one of the things I say about R3 is that it's not, it's not just the numbers. Like the percentage, even in Montana, the percentage of population that's participating is less. So our numbers are stable from a license sales standpoint or, you know, they sort of yeah. wave like this. But it speaks per- to a demographic shift. Yeah, like I – and I use this analogy that you're more apt to to marry a non-hunter in 2019 than you were in 2018. Right. And that's not maybe a big deal because maybe you marry somebody that's supportive of hunting uh, but isn't a hunter. But that still – that adds that, that little bit of hurdle, somebody that – 
that wasn't uh, he didn't grow up around guns. Maybe you know, and he, he just doesn't really understand him. Then the kids grow up, and you have this sort of this sort of plan that you have to put into place on how you're going to get the kids out hunting and that sort of thing. When when we were kids, there wasn't I didn't have any. That wasn't even part of the plan. I just I just got a BB gun and said get out of the house you know and don't yeah. come back till dinner but people aren't gonna like my brother kind of talked me out of being here he's in the process of talking me out of being um talking me out of being pro r3 was it retention recruitment and reactivation pro more hunters uh he's t- he's been he's in the process of talking me out of being that way and um we're never gonna like hunters aren't gonna wreak the rewards of fewer hunters because people are just going to, like, now... like Lose support. Well, no, but I'm saying, yeah, that's what I argue. But the thing is, you're never going to be like that because you're never going to be like, oh, it's a lot, the woods are better now because people just lease it all up. Like, people used to not lease stuff, and now people just lease properties. So the day that, like, from his perspective, he'd be like, the day someone comes to me and says, I have a big, beautiful ranch, and by God... I'm just trying to get someone to come out and hunt it full of deer and elk, but I can't find anyone to hunt. He's like, on that day, I'll become like a pro recruitment dude. But that day hasn't happened. And it's, there are, you know, just like fewer places to go. And when you go, there's more people in them. And so it's really hard to get people on board with the idea that you, that, that, that we need a bunch more people. Right. You know, you got like, there's people I know that lease up properties. They lease up their hunting rights on properties. They don't even hunt them. They just want to know that no one's hunting them. I mean, it's like like actual, you know, they want to know that if they wanted to go there, there'd be no one there. And last year I didn't even go. It's just, it's hard to get, uh, with a it's lot hard of- to get excited about. It's hard for people to get, a lot of people, it's hard to get excited about a bunch more hunters out in the woods. <laughs> well, and I don't think we're talking, uh, a, we're not, the goal isn't to have a bunch more hunters. I think it, the R3 is just part of it. And access Access is is another key part. It's a key part of R three, but it's also a key part of just what we do, you know, and trying to get people, people and uh, landowners, you know, the shifting shifting landowners like you're talking about, you know, where where the communities, people in in small communities, they used to know who to call to go get on Johnson's place or the K Bar L Ranch or whatever, and today they might not. I mean, it just might be a landowner that is just not not as much a part of the community as they used to be. Yeah. But so so it's all it's all sort of um, part of the fabric of of sort of what we have to face with the department. And I think primarily what where and Martha's talked about this a lot internally too, but is is looking to sort of figure out how to have those meaningful experiences outdoors because it's not. It's not just that you can only do that by hunting or you can only do that by fishing. Yeah, you can trapping. You can or by trapping, <laughs> right? But we Addle Addle. But we talk about it. I mean, we can think about like these meaningful episodes that we've had outdoors that have shaped who we are. And and there's like there's one after another after another after another. Um and some people don't and even in Montana some people don't get that. I mean, we you know, on the at the from our education programming, we've got um, like our aquatic ed. Uh, we're in fifth grades uh, around the state doing you know education about fisheries and things like that. You'd be amazed at the number of kids that look at a fish and they don't they don't know that's a perch. 
I mean, that though we usually have they dissect even perches. touched a fish before. Yeah, just, I mean, in Montana, they just it's it's even here we're becoming more urbanized. We're you know in a state where you think like, my gosh, this is Montana. It couldn't couldn't possibly be true here, but it is true. And I so I think beyond the R three discussion of how do we sell more licenses, that's it's really not our focus when we have that conversation our is how do we get how do we sort of build up the next generation of conservationists that are concerned about you know all the things that go into loving the outdoors yeah that's the that's the when i talk about this debate i have with my brother that's the one i do yeah i do that side of it yeah. oh, i don't know if you know me and yanni are uh we're running for president i heard that because I had suggested that Yanni run for mayor, Bozeman, but he said he's got another gig. No, because we're all tied up with being president. Um, <laughs> but all the money, when people buy our uh, Runella Patellis Better Hunting and Fishing for America 2020 shirts, all of our money we're putting into our access piggy bank, and we're going to use it for an access project. Ooh. Sounds Bumper good. stickers, yard signs. Uh, we don't know what. Cal, our buddy Cal's uneasy with the lack of specificity we've had so far. <laughs> but trust me, no, no, I'm serious. It's like a thing. We're like banking the money. We're gonna have an access piggy bank, and we're right now currently looking at different kinds of access projects or a group we would help with an access, a land acquisition that would open up landlocked public lands. We'll figure it out. Yeah, you have one in mind. No, but it's funny. Uh, we should talk sometime. No, we don't. I want to do a combo of that. We're going to take our piggy bank, and then I want to run a GoFundMe project and look at some specific acquisitions and to see if people would think it would be fun to throw in five bucks and buy a chunk of land and have it be for public access. That'd be cool. Then we'll go recruit a hunter or two to go on there and hunt. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's that. Our our gnome packing out a unicorn mm-hmm. t-shirt Yeah, is now joined with a gnome who's reeling in a mermaid. Doing battle with a mermaid. Yeah. Is the title actually Gnome Tussling? I think it's Gnome Tussling with a Mermaid. Uh-huh. People want to know what happened, but I don't know. It could be incidental bycatch. It could be a courtship ritual. I don't know. It's just a gnome, and he happens to have a mermaid on. Yeah. I'm not saying what's going to happen. I don't know what they got going on. She might be messing with him. My brother thinks that she's pulling him in to kill him. Huh. Um, hey, wait a minute. You're assuming the mermaid's a she and the gnome's a he. It's very female mermaid and a very male mer- gnome. It's a yeah. bearded okay. gnome <laughs> and, a, and a very, Shit, like, a very... Yeah. I wouldn't go so far. It's not like an erotic mermaid, but it's a female form. It's a female yeah. mermaid. You could use the term voluptuous. The voluptuous... No, I don't even Maybe. Know. Yeah, you could. It's a female form. Yeah. And then uh, we have our gnome. Uh, we have our T-shirt out coming out with our gnome that's in a... You know those old pictures of where a mountain man's got his knife and he's in a fight with a grizzly? It's our gnomes in a in a knife fight with a Bigfoot. Ooh. The Bigfoot's got him good, but he's also got his Bowie knife out. And a guy just said, we've been getting a lot of ideas for gnome shirts. I think what we're going to start working on next is a gnome and a blind, and it's a big flock of dragons coming in all cupped out. <laughs> <laughs> all cupped out coming into the decoys. It's going to be sweet, man. So you can find all and that. Our- you can also find our gnome packing out a unicorn shirt is back in full color. Yeah. Gnome packing out a unicorn, full color. Find it all, the whole gnome lineup. And this gnome, I think this is going to turn into like a big expansion of gnome-themed products, man. Uh, you guys good? We're good. Thanks for sitting through our little plug there. It was a natural plug because it started out talking about our access fund, Runella Propels 2020. Mm-hmm. Don't tell everybody. I know you're going to write us in when you vote, but don't tell people because I know you don't want to get partisan. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't know. I don't even vote. Oh. No, I'm just. Oh. You're so on. <laughs> Renel, uh, it's Renella Patel's 2020. Um, Martha, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. If there's ever something that comes up and you really need to come and talk to someone about it, you should come talk to us about it. All right. All right. I love how you dive into the issues. We need to do this more. Yeah. I enjoy it. <laughs> do you? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, he great. really does. It's great. I, and I say to, I'll say that too. If you guys come up to come up with stuff, because I, I, we listen and I hear these, you know, conversations. And I think one of them was. Yeah, I could say something we did that was wrong. No, right? no, no. Oh, it was okay. the debate. Like, can you can you use the stream access law for big game hunting? Mm. You know that those sorts of things where you know we're I was listening. I was like, I don't know. I mean, I got I bird dogged it all down, but it was hard. It's interesting. Can I hit you with one that sure. just came up the other day? If it's licensing, I'm not going to know. No, no, no. Check this out. Me and my kid on Saturday, we're out in our uh, in our jet boat messing around, trying to get it dialed in, and we pull up on this island, and I find a, a find a nice buck. Now the backside of him been eaten out by coyotes, but he's just floating in the river. Not like a not like a skull, like full on fresh dead, but cloudy eyes. Clearly been laying in the river a long time. He was pissed that I didn't axe the head off it and let him bring it home. But I was like, I don't know if this counts as like a skull. Like I don't know if this is like a dead head and it's hunting season. And I feel like we'd have a lot of explaining to do to have a furred severed head. Of uh, been dead for a few days, but not terribly long buck in our boat. So I made him leave it. And he's like, well, just look it up. And I'm like, there's some things that are easy to look up, and there's some things that are tricky to look <laughs> yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. Do you have so, any feedback on that? I, what I, w- I would suggest is if you wanted the antlers or wanted the head, is to call the game board and tell them what you found. That's what I was telling Count my kid. Titmar- Titmont, tell them what you found. And then when the game warden calls you, say, you know, hey, this is what I found, this is where it is. And, you know, when you're done looking into it, can I, is it okay if I get the antlers? I think, you know, they sort all that out. You know what I did do? I don't know, maybe it's illegal. I drug it out of the water and pulled it up on a little island gravel bar. So it didn't float away? Well, we were just having a debate and it was better to have the debate with it laying there than have it floating by. Yeah, well, you could you could still you could still do it. We you could you could let the game warden know, and he'd go next time you're on the gravel bar. You could you know ask him if it'd be okay just to grab him because at some point I don't know that what I don't think there's anything specific in no. It'd just be like a matter of like what kind of conversations do you want to invite? Like, why is there a dead buck's head in your truck? Like, well, what happened was right. I just didn't feel like Right. right. I didn't yeah. feel like needing to have that chat. <laughs> I found a I found a buck on a gravel bar one time with its horns dead, horns cut off. Called the game warden, told him where it was, but I called him right from where I where I was standing, and then I kept hunting. And I hunted up to another gravel bar, and on that gravel bar, I found a saw, <laughs> all chewed up, you know, and it was open, still had like you know bone stuff and flesh on it, and I didn't even think about it. I just picked it up and put it in my pocket and kept going but it, the handle is all chewed up on it and i realized when i got home that had to have been the saw that was used in the crime yeah. and probably some like fox or coyote had grabbed the saw and chewed on it a little bit and then left it on the next gravel bar up oh, that's great man crazy i still use it still got it all right phil you got any questions 
Uh, no, I, I do want to say, though, that I was part of the party coalition on the Madison this summer, and I will come to the next public... Uh, Public, <laughs> public comment session. I'll be the lone rep. Phil's going to be there. He's going to be shirtless. He's going to have some cut-off blue jeans. That's he's right. going to be pretty drunk. He's going to be sunburned. And he's going to give you guys a earful about yep. telling him where he can and can't ride yeah. his inner tube. <laughs> I can't wait. Can you bring Mango? Oh, I, she would love it. Yes. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. I've used that sport dog collar in different temperatures. It just doesn't stop working. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more.